Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. Yeah, I'm trying to update my notes here. Um, there's a there's like a strange calm. Uh, you know, we we're so used to having devastating news like all the time. Uh, and so when the train disaster happened in East Palestine, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, and, and the things have been coming fat, you know, fast and furiously, as they say, you know, the, the, from the State of the Union to uh, all the scandals to all the House uh, uh, reports and investigations to the Supreme Court. Do, I don't know what they're doing. I was listening to their debate uh, on the uh, Section 230, um, which is the, the uh, bill that Congress passed um, to allow big tech to censor. <laughs> they actually did it. You know, so big tech not doing anything they don't have permission to do from Congress, which is kind of crazy. So I'm listening to the debate, and it all concerns the, the, the strange legalities and the case law and the precedents and all the other stupid things that they talk about all the time. And they don't actually deal with the problem, which, which is, is a violation of the First Amendment. Congress actually passed a law that they, they can't pass and specifically put in it that uh, the First Amendment doesn't apply, <laughs> that censorship's okay. And they didn't talk. And I listen. I'm listening to this. And this is part of the problem with government. They don't listen. They don't understand. They, they, they do. They're in their patterns. They're in their regimentations. They never actually deal with something at a simple level. And the simple thing you do with Section 230 is what our bill does, which is why I wrote it. It's very simple. You say that big tech is immune from anything anybody uh, um, posts. Okay, so so the, the 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 person that posts. In other words, there's two people in what they call interactive. Uh, uh, computer services. There's the provider, that's big tech, and there's the user, that's us. And so whether it's uh, search engines or social media, those are the two big products of interactive computer services, um, the folks that provide it are immune from what the, the, the folks that use it do with it. Same thing with the phones, you know, same thing with anything, same thing with a car. You know, if you if you drive, uh, you know, a car, well, I'm not going to describe a bunch of horrendous situations, but you know what I'm talking about. If you commit a crime with a car, you know, rob a bank, you know, do stuff, uh, you know, drive through a store, <laughs> all the things that people do with cars. Uh, you know, GM's not responsible if you happen to have a GM, you know, in the same way that uh, you say, you know, you threaten a public official on the phone, they don't arrest AT&T or whoever your provider is. You know, and so in the same way, um, with big tech, they're immune from things that people post and things people do. You know, if you look up, look up how, to, how to build a nuclear bomb, which I'm, I'm sure is on the internet. I haven't looked it up. Maybe I will. It'd be kind of interesting. And then you actually try and build a nuclear bomb. <laughs> you know, the, the person that posts how to build a nuclear bomb is not liable because you did it yourself. What was it? The anarchist cookbook? A bunch of things for anarchists, how to create mayhem. Um, that's not a crime to publish that. It's just a crime to actually do it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like the Second Amendment. You know, crime is not included in the Second Amendment. So if uh, the Second Amendment says, you, you know, everybody has a right to keep and bear arms. Okay, well, if you commit a crime with a gun, <laughs> you know, that, that's not there. Then, then you're responsible for that. You know, so it's fascinating that they don't actually deal with that simple reality in the Supreme Court that uh, people who use the Internet, uh, who, uh, you know, post things and stuff, uh, if, they, if they commit a crime, they're responsible. Short of that, big tech can't touch them. So what the Congress said is that big tech can remove anything that they find objectionable. That'd be like say, telling, giving the phone company permission to you know, delete your account if you said something to a friend that they didn't like. <laughs> I mean, that's the equivalent. And yet we put up with it. We, 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 don't, we never put up with that with a phone, but we put up with it with big tech, at least Congress does, because they haven't changed the rules. They haven't changed the law. 
and the Supreme Court. I'm not sure what they're going to do with their argument. I'm not sure what the case is. I've tried listening. Like I said, they get lost in the minutia, so it's really hard to tell. So that's in the news. Um, I'm going to talk to Derek about a couple things. Derek will be on at the bottom of the hour, our, our, our financial guru. And apparently treasury yields are spiking. This is not good. <laughs> so, so and I watched this on Dick Morris last week, and Zero Hedge has an article on this. So the government is paying a whole lot more money to borrow money, which means the cost of money is much more expensive. Uh, and that comes out in inflation because they have to pay even more money to, to have the government be the, the investment of choice. Um, over all the other possible things out there. So I'm not sure exactly what that means. It's been a while since I studied economics. Um, looks like the troops, you know, hopefully are going to uh, get their jobs back, those that were discharged for refusing the, the COVID jab, which was illegal, by the way, because it was not approved. It was, it was an experimental uh, treatment, and therefore the, the folks in the military had no obligation to take it. You know, it's kind of a crazy thing about that. That, uh, you know, and, and I understand the idea of the, of the vaccine for troops that are going into foreign places. You know, there used to be a time in the '60s when I, I went to Europe and, and I had to have a, you know a, a few shots uh, before going into France and England and some of the other countries. So it was quite interesting. But uh, that was then. Uh, this is now, and things are quite different. All right. So one of the things I want to talk about this morning, and in fact, the title of the show is "The Ukraine War Was Inevitable After Obama Stole the Election," and History is always a great guide. And if you don't look back into history, you really miss what's going on. So I try and make these connections. I try and you know, present things in a way uh, that it makes sense. And you say, oh, well, now I understand where that came from. And so I had heard, but I hadn't really investigated this idea that uh, uh, Obama you know, stole the, uh, the Ukraine election uh, in 2014. And as a result of that, uh, they put, uh, uh, was it, I don't know if Zelensky was put in there, but they put in this corrupt government in Ukraine. And then Russia ended up uh, walking in uh, and taking uh, the Crimea, uh, which is uh, the lower peninsula. It's actually connected to Russia. Through, they have a causeway. You can actually drive there from Russia directly. You know, it's, it's the southern part of Ukraine. Uh, on one side is Odessa, the, the famous port, um, which would actually be really interesting to go interesting city to go see, but not today, but someday. It'd be really fascinating to go, to go take a look there. Uh, on the other side of it is, uh, I think, the Caspian Sea, Russia, uh, and Ukraine. And it's, it's um, you got to look at your map. Actually, let me get one. I just happen to have a globe. I just happen to have a globe for instances like this, so I can always refer to a world map. So let's see what, what it looks like here. So there's Ukraine. Uh, Crimea is this big peninsula. It's on the Black Sea. I'm sorry, my mistake. Russia's to the east. Uh, Poland's to the west, Belarus to the north, looks like, uh, you know, Bulgaria to the south, and you got the Black Sea, and of course the way out of the Black Sea uh, is through Turkey, and so the Istanbul, uh, the Straits, uh, the, the Bosphorus, you know, the, all that kind of stuff. So you get from the Turkey, from Turkey into the Mediterranean, and if you want to get to the Red Sea, you go through the Suez Canal, if you want to get out, you go through the Strait of Gibraltar at the other end of the Mediterranean, and that's how the world looks. Anyway, so that's what it looks like now. So Ukraine's actually a big place. In fact, it's the largest country in Europe that doesn't listen to action radio. Let me put my globe back. So let me lean back for a second here. Oh, there we go. Ah, okay. So I'll figure out how the, how the game works and stuff. But uh, we seem to be involved there. And I actually started a, 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 like a joke rumor that, uh, in fact, I posted this on Facebook. If you really want to end um, the war in, in Ukraine, or at least the U.S. involvement in, in the war in Ukraine, then uh, start a rumor that Brandon wants to have a draft and that we're going to draft American soldiers to go fight there. And then, of course, I see stories and, and things that, well, we, you know, Zelensky wants troops there, and then Zelensky doesn't want U.S. troops there, and U.S. troops are already there, you know, taking care of the weapon systems and helping the, the Ukrainians use them and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. So I, th- I thought it was a joke, but I don't, want to, I don't want our troops there. I don't want anything to do with the Ukraine. We never should have been there. 
In fact, we never would have had a war if NATO hadn't been so stupid as to want to, uh, you know, include uh, Ukraine and NATO. NATO used to be the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It was designed to offset the power of the Warsaw Pact. I think the Warsaw Pact came later. So NATO was, was the effort to make sure that, Europe, the, that Russia didn't take all of Europe, only Eastern Europe. <laughs> so, so Russia takes over Eastern Europe from Poland, Romania, Hungary, Hungary excuse me, uh, Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, the Baltic states, you know, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia, and all those folks down uh, Moldova, Slovenia, all these countries were basically Russian satellite countries for a while until the Cold War ended, and that was Gorbachev and Reagan. And so the idea that NATO thinks, great, no, it's our turn, let's go expand, was absolute idiocy, was, was folly, was stupid, was dumb, and a lot of American leaders warned against it. It's like, no, stay the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, stay Western Europe, stay the hell out of Eastern Europe, and uh, let's just, uh, you know, don't wake the sleeping uh, bear. <laughs> you know? Well, they did wake the sleeping bear. And they tweaked him in the nose and said, ah, we're here. Dumb. <laughs> Amazingly dumb. So I found two articles. One written August 6th of 2017. That's, incidentally, the, the day the atomic bomb was dropped in 1945. Uh, and this is by the same person, Ted Galen Carpenter. So we have August 6th of 2017. And then the follow-up article was written March 7th of 2022, so just last year. And so actually about a year, uh, almost a year ago. Uh, and it, uh, but it, it serves to illustrate why we're there if you understand the history of, of the involvement of the Democrat Republican parties uh, in Ukraine as the money laundering bank, as the bioweapon lab, as the experiment place for, for uh, all our weapons. You know, we, I have a theory that uh, you know, the military goes to war every 10 years just to test the new weapons out. That's what Iraq was about. That's what Afghanistan was about. That's what a bunch of places were about. Well, let's test them out, see if they work. You know, the cruise missiles were tested by Clinton in uh, uh, the whole Bosnia-Herzegovina-Serbia war which never should have happened either. In fact, we haven't had a legal war since World War II. It's the last war that had a declaration of war. Well, you can't have a war in the United States without a, de- uh, without a declaration of war. At least you're not supposed to. That's how it's supposed to work. So the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank, which I recently subscribed to get their stuff, uh, wrote an article, on, in other words, Ted Galen Carpenter, spelled just like you would spell a carpenter. Uh, August 6, 2017, said America's Ukraine hypocrisy. And he starts off, there is an abundance of outrage in the United States about Russia's alleged meddling in the 2016 presidential election. Multiple investigations are taking place, and Moscow's conduct was a major justification for the sanctions legislation that Congress just passed, just being, you know, 2016. Um, It says, uh, or even just early 2017. Some furious political figures and members of the media insisted that the Putin government's interference constitutes an act of war. Oh, please. One especially agitated House member even compared explicitly to the Pearl Harbor and 9-11 attacks. Well, like I say, Pearl Harbor, this article is written August 6th, which is, which is kind of interesting. He says such umbrage might be more credible if the United States refrained from engaging in similar conduct. Uh-oh. But the historical record shows that Washington has meddled in the political affairs of dozens of countries, including many democracies which, of course, we are not. We're actually a republic by constitution. Article 4, Section 4 defines us as a republic and guarantees that we will stay one. So we're not a democracy. Anytime someone says democracy, it means they're either an idiot or they're trying to be a propagandist. All right, an agreed, back to the article. An egregious example occurred in Ukraine during the Euromaidan revolution of 2014. I've also heard it called the color uh, revolution, and I'm not sure the definition of color uh, that's that's because uh, usually when they say color of law, that's a law enforcement kind of thing. But we'll get there. 
It says, here we go. Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych was not an admirable character. So the Ukrainian president at the time, okay, he says, after his election in 2010, he used patronage and other instruments of state power in a flagrant fashion to the advantage of his political party. Gee, isn't that what's going on now? Uh, and, and especially since you know, the person in the White House wasn't elected, which is quite interesting. Article says that high-handed behavior and legendary corruption alienated large portions of Ukraine's population. As the Ukrainian economy languished and fell farther and farther behind those of Poland and other Eastern East European neighbors that weren't so corrupt, you know, had a free market, that that's how you get progress and, and prosperity. Anyway, it says that had uh, implemented significant market-oriented reforms, public anger at Yanukovych mounted. When he rejected the European Union's terms for an association agreement in late 2013 in favor of a Russian offer, angry demonstrators filled Kiev's, and it's Kiev, not Kiev, Kiev's independent square known as Maiden or Maidan, M-A-I-D-A-N, as well as sites in other cities. Despite his leadership defects and character flaws, Yanukovych had been duly elected, <laughs> unlike Brandon, right? He didn't say that, but I said that. In balloting the international observers considered reasonably free and fair, <laughs> unlike our own elections. Um, article says about the best standard one can hope for outside the mature Western democracies. Well, that's not true anymore. Anyway, it says the decent respect for democratic institutions and procedures meant that he ought to be able to serve out his lawful term as president, which would end in 2016, of course, even if he's a bad one. Now, it says, neither the domestic opposition nor Washington and its European, European allies behaved in that fashion. Instead, Western leaders made it clear that they supported the efforts of, dem of demonstrators to force Yanukovych to reverse course and approve the EU, that's the European Union, agreement, or, if he would not do so, to remove the president before his term expired. Senator John McCain, <laughs> the ranking Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, went to Kiev to show solidarity with the European activists. McCain dined with opposition leaders, including members of the ultra-right-wing Svoboda Party, that's S-V-O-B-O-D-A, S-V-O-B-O-D-A, Svoboda Party, and later appeared on stage in Maidan Square during a mass rally. He stood shoulder to shoulder with Svoboda leader Oleg, <laughs> okay, here we go, <laughs> Tiagnibok, Tiagnibok, Oleg Tiagnibok. If I put an accent in it, I think it sounds better. <laughs> because I can't pronounce that one. Uh, article says, but McCain's actions were a model of the diplomatic restraint compared to the conduct of Victoria Newland, who apparently is still working in the federal government. I'm not sure why. Anyway, Victoria Newland, the Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian, uh, that would be Europe and Asia, Eurasian Affairs, as Ukraine's political crisis deepened. Newland, or I've heard also pronounced Nyland, but Newland, and her subordinates became more brazen in favoring the anti-Yanukovych demonstrators or yeah, demonstrators, there we go. Um, Newland noted in a speech to the U.S. Ukraine Foundation, do we have the U.S. Ukraine Foundation? Hmm, that's interesting too. On December 13, 2013, that she had traveled to Ukraine three times in three weeks, well, she's busy, following the start of the demonstrations. Visiting the Maiden on December 5th, she handed out cookies to demonstrators and expressed support for their cause. Well, I guess that's the, 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 the latest cookie diplomacy. Anyway, it says the extent of the Obama administration's meddling in Ukraine's politics was breathtaking. Russian intelligence intercepted and leaked to the international media a Newland telephone call in which she and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, P-Y-A-T-T, discussed in detail their preferences for specific personnel in a post-Yanukovych government. Yeah, they're only making plans, right? The U.S. favorite candidates included uh, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, a man who became prime minister once Yanukovych was ousted from power. 
During the telephone call, Newland stated enthusiastically that Yats uh, is the guy uh, who would do the best job. Actually, you know, for her, right? Newland and Pyatt were engaged in such planning at a time when Yanukovych was still Ukraine's lawful president. Hmm. It was startling to have diplomatic representatives of a foreign country and a country that routinely touts the need to respect democratic processes, which we don't, right? And the sovereignty of other nations, which we don't care either, <laughs> to be scheming about removing an elected government and replacing it with official uh, meriting, uh, officials meriting U.S. approval. Well, that's pretty much what happened here, right? <laughs> anyway, this is Washington's conduct not only con- constituted meddling, it bordered on uh, micromanagement. At one point, Pyatt mentioned the complex dynamic among the three principles, uh, principal opposition leaders, Yatsenyuk, Oleg Tianbuk, and Vitaly Klitschko. I've heard Klitschko before, right? K-L-I-T-S-C-H-K-O. Two syllables, many letters. Hmm. Both Pyatt and Newland wanted to keep Tianbuk and Klitschko out of an interim government. In the former case, they worried about his extremist ties. <laughs> in the latter, they seemed to want him to wait and make a bid for office on a longer-term basis. Newland stated that, quote, I don't think Klitsch, she's got like, like nicknames for everybody, right? I don't think Klitsch should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. Hmm, she doesn't think it's necessary. She added uh, that what Yatsenyuk needed is Klitsch and Tianbuk on the outside. Okay, so I don't know how much more of this article I want to go. Well, actually, now it gets better. The two diplomats were also were prepared to escalate the already extensive U.S. involvement in Ukraine's political turbulence. Pyatt stated bluntly that, quote, we want to try to get somebody with an international personality to come out here and help to midwife this thing. In other words, the political transition. Newland clearly had Vice President Joe Biden in mind for that role. Huh. Oh, there we go. See? So does Newland run Biden? Wouldn't surprise me, certainly on the international scene. Newland clearly had Vice President Joe Biden in mind. Okay, I already said that. Noting that the Vice President's National Security Advisor was in direct contact with her, Newland related that she told him, quote, probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the details to stick. So Biden's willing. There we go. Both the Obama administration and most of the American news media portrayed the Euro maiden revolution as a spontaneous popular uprising against corrupt and brutal government. Yeah. Enter the propagandists, right? On February 24th, 2014, Washington Post editorial celebrated the Maiden demonstrators and their successful campaign to overthrow Yanukovych. The moves were dramatic, the Washington Post concluded, and Kiev, which they pronounced it that way then, <laughs> is now controlled by pro-Western parties. So you get a Russian government under Yan- a Russian favoring government under Yanukovych, and both the European Union and uh, the, the D.C. warmongers didn't want that. So they get rid of Yanukovych and replace him with you-know-who, right? It says it was a grotesque distortion to portray the events in Ukraine as a purely indigenous popular uprising. The Newland Pyatt telephone conversation and other actions confirm that the United States was considerably more than a passive observer to the turbulence. Instead, U.S. officials were blatantly meddling in Ukraine. Hmm. Such conduct was utterly improper. (laughs) So what, right? The United States had no right to try to orchestrate political outcomes in another country. Like Obama and Israel, uh huh. Especially on one, especially one on the border of another great power, yeah, Ukraine and Russia. It is no wonder that Russia reacted badly to the unconstitutional ouster of an elected pro-Russian government. Uh oh, an ouster that occurred not only with Washington's blessing, but apparently with its assistance. There you go. Gee, doesn't that make us? Uh, you know, and you wonder why Russia's upset? <laughs> yeah. So they had a pro-Russian government in Ukraine. 
that was elected, that was duly, you know, good or bad. I mean, they were elected, um, and they were pro-Russian. And then they, then they get the, the Brandon, um, well, actually the Obama insurrection in Ukraine, uh, you know, spurs a, a spontaneous series of demonstrations. They think it's a homegrown uh, thing that's not. And Washington gets rid of the duly elected person and puts in somebody else. And you wonder why Russia's upset. <laughs> anyway, it's this data episode, as well as earlier ones involving Italy, France, and other democratic countries. Of course, that really didn't mean much of anything anymore. I should keep in mind the next time U.S. political leaders or the media publicly fume about Russia's apparent interference in America's 2016 elections. One can legitimately condemn some aspects of Moscow's behavior, but the force of America's moral outrage uh, is vitiated, that's a great word, by the stretch by the stench, excuse me, of U.S. hypocrisy. Yeah, no kidding. So yeah, a bunch of hypocrites. So let's 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 fast forward. Same organization, Cato, uh, which is a, lib- a libertarian think tank. Same author, Ted Galen Carpenter. Uh, different date, March seventh, twenty twenty-two. So six years later. Uh, was it six years? Let me see what the first one was. Let's get my date straight here. Let's get back at the top. Twenty seventeen to twenty twenty. Five years later. So five years later, he comes back and visits the same topic. And he says, the U.S. and NATO helped trigger the Ukraine war. It's not siding with Putin to admit it. Mm-hmm. March 7, 2022, this appeared in Newsweek first. Vladimir Putin's decision to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine is a monstrous act of aggression that has plunged the world into a perilous situation. Yes, it has. By any reasonable standard, his move was an over-the-top response to any Ukrainian or NATO provocations. Not necessarily. However, that conclusion is different from saying that there were no provocations as far uh, too many policymakers and pundits you know, in the West are doing now. Yep, they sure are. He says it has become especially fashionable in such circles to insist that NATO's expansion to Russia's border was in no way responsible for the current Ukraine crisis. This is why I didn't include a laugh track if I had one. Many dismiss all arguments to the contrary as, quote, echoing Putin's talking points, siding with Putin, or circulating Russian propaganda and disinformation. Disinformation, that's stuff that makes you look bad. <laughs> that's, my, that's my new definition of disinformation. People call things disinformation when it makes them look bad. Anyway, this is leaving aside the ugly miasma, or oh, there's a great word, of McCarthyism, uh, and developing such allegations, the underlying argument is factually wrong. Article says Russian leaders and several Western policy experts were warning more than two decades ago that NATO expansion would turn out badly. Hey, guess what? They were right. (laughs) Ending in a new Cold War with Russia. Yep. At best. And a hot one at worst. Yep. Obviously, they were not echoing Putin or anybody else. George Kennan, he goes back. He's like containment. This guy goes back forever. George Kennan, the intellectual architect of America's containment policy during the Cold War, perceptively warned. Uh, it goes back to like the Korean War. This guy was brilliant. Perceptively warned in May in a May second, nineteen ninety eight, New York Times to do what NATO's move eastern would set in motion. He says, "I think it is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely, and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake." And coming from somebody like George Kennan, uh, that's something to be taken not to be taken lightly. You know, this guy was was brilliant. I didn't always agree with him. I didn't think containment, you know, the domino theory and containment, you know, Korea, Vietnam, all the way through. No. But uh, his observations of uh, uh, his analysis was good. I think his, his solutions, you know, left a little bit to be desired. Anyway, uh, Kennan was back to the article. Kennan was speaking of the first round of, of enlargement that brought into alliance Poland, the Czech Republic and Hungary. 
Later rounds, which added the Baltic republics and other East European countries, were considerably more abrasive, and Washington's subsequent attempt to make Ukraine and Georgia members Stalin came from Georgia, okay? Georgia members was contentious of Russia's core security interests. Moscow's complaints and warnings were becoming increasingly sharp as well. Yet U.S. and European officials blew through one red light after another. Idiots. That was me. (laughs) George W. Bush began to treat Georgia and Ukraine as valued U.S. political and military allies. (laughs) Wrong. And in 2008, he pressed NATO to admit Ukraine and Georgia as much. French and German wariness delayed that endeavor, but the, but the NATO summit communique affirmed that both countries would eventually achieve that status. Okay, so let, let's see about what's going on here, because this is fascinating. So Bush the Elder, Bush the Younger, um, McCain, Romney, um, all the, you know, most of the folks in Washington, uh, John Bolton, uh, what's your name? Uh, uh, I forgot, the Nikki Haley, all these folks are globalists. All right. So the globalists believe in a global world government. They believe in the UN. They're all, you know, World Economic Forum, the WHO. It's all the same bunch, right? So they think that national sovereignty doesn't exist and the world would be a better place if we all had one government and they were in charge. Okay. It's a bunch of nonsense. Part of that world government is what I call the permanent war class. These are the folks that are always uh, wanting us to be at war somewhere. So as soon as uh, Brandon surrendered in Afghanistan and left $82 billion worth of our weapons there, we had to go to war somewhere else. Uh, and we couldn't reclaim those weapons because they had to be on the world stage. So we'd have people to, you know, go to war with. <laughs> this is how this all works, right? And the place that was the next target was the place that was the money laundering, bioweapon, um, most corrupt place on the planet, Ukraine. <laughs> and so that's why they went there. And so this permanent war class, which has expanded NATO way beyond its, its original intention, which was Western Europe, to protect Western Europe from Eastern Europe uh, and the Soviet, you know, bloc that it was then under the Warsaw Pact. Warsaw Pact was the opposition to NATO. Uh, once the Warsaw Pact collapsed and Russia collapsed, or the Soviet Union collapsed, that was the time to disband NATO. Back in the 80s, under Reagan, Reagan should have said, okay, we're done. See, the biggest problem with politics is they never know when to end. They never know when to go home. You know, it's like the EPA cleaned up uh, a lot of Superfund sites, hazardous waste sites from the, the 60s, 50s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, probably going back to World War II. And they did their job, and then they should have been uh, abolished and uh, the state EPA should have taken over. You know, it's very simple. Uh, a lot of these things would be so simple if the government's just knew when to end shut up. Department of Education never should have existed. But there's a lot of places. Energy. You know, it, it used to promote nuclear power. You know, and they were better then when we had nuclear plants. But now, now they're, you know, the, the woke, uh, all kinds of other things. They don't need to exist. In fact, most of the federal government does not need to exist. Uh, the states can do it just fine. All right. So let's go through back to our article here. So in his 2014 memoir, uh, Duty, and that's by Robert M. Gates, who served as Secretary of Defense in both Bush administration and Barack Obama's. There's an amazing amount of transfer. A lot of the same people were in Bush the Elder, Bush the Younger, uh, Obama and Clinton. <laughs> you know, Newland, Victoria Newland, I think, you know, was in there for most of them. She's like a lifetime government employee. Anyway, it says uh, the Bush administrations and Barack Obama's conceded that to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO was truly overreaching. Yeah, it was. That initiative, he concluded, was a case of recklessly ignoring what the Russians considered their own vital national interests. Yeah, it's like when the Russians went into Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, the Ukraine is, is, is the Ukraine, you know, basically war crisis to Russia. It's the same thing, you know, and it's rapidly becoming the country of a Viet-Ukraine-Nam, as I'm starting to call it. So Vietnam-Ukraine or Ukraine-Vietnam um, is just crazy. Uh, it's a very... Um, dangerous uh, situation that's going on here. And the worst part is there's no need for it. There's no reason for it. 
This is an Eastern European problem, which we've talked about. Anyway, Derek's going to join us in just a couple of minutes here. So let me see if I can finish this. Um, otherwise, I'll pick it up uh, at the top of the hour. It, the article says, indeed it was, and Moscow began to push back. Putin exploited a foolish provocation by Georgia's pro-Western government to launch a military offensive that penetrated deeply into that country. Upon its victory, Russia permanently detached two secessionist-minded Georgian regions and put them under permanent Russian control. So the West goes in, they bring NATO to countries where NATO shouldn't be, uh, right next to Russia. Russia reacts, goes in militarily, and takes them back. Gee, do you think that would have served as a model for what's happening now? Could they not have predicted this? <laughs> of course they could have, but why bother? There's a war to be had and money to be made, right? Article says the Kremlin's decisive action should have alerted even slow-learning U.S. leaders that the days of Russian officials merely issuing verbal protests about the West's steady encroachment into Russia's security sphere were over. Yeah, big surprise. Amazingly, though, the Obama administration still sought to turn Ukraine into a NATO political and military asset. See, that's when the war began. It began with Obama, right? In late 2013 and early 2014, the United States and several European governments meddled shamelessly to support the efforts of demonstrators to unseat Ukraine's generally pro-Russia president, Viktor Yanukovych, some two years before the expiration of his term. So this is where it started. Okay, this is a repeat of what the author said five years previously, but you can see how it ties in. He says that campaign was especially inappropriate since Yanukovych became president in 2010 as the result of an election that even the European Union and other international observers acknowledged was reasonably free and fair. He said that five years previously, too. In a democratic system, the legal way to remove a president from office is, depending on a specific country's constitutional rules, through a parliamentary vote of no confidence, impeachment, which is what we have in a, in a republic, or defeated the next election. Angry street demonstrations do not fit into any of those categories, yet the United States and its allies backed that illegal process. Ah, see? Practice for 2020, right? A recording of the infamous leaked telephone call between Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Jeffrey Pyatt confirmed the extent of Washington's meddling in the affairs of a sovereign country. So a lot of this is repeat, but it, you can see how it ties in. The, U, the Ukraine episode proved to be an intolerable provocation to neighboring Russia. Putin responded by annexing the strategic Crimea Peninsula, and the United States and his NATO partners then imposed economic sanctions on Russia. The new Cold War uh, was on in earnest. So needless intervention, needlessly, you know, tweaking the bear, taking territory that they believe was in their security interest. They invaded Georgia when it happens. They've invaded Ukraine when it happened. All these actions are completely predictable. All these actions are directly relatable. You can see exactly how these things are happening. Anyway, it says, yet Washington still refused to back off. Instead, the Trump and Biden administrations poured weapons into Ukraine. See, Trump screwed up there too, right? Pro uh, approved joint military exercises between U.S. and Ukrainian forces and even prodded the allies to include Ukraine in NATO war games. Idiots. Okay, I'm almost done. Derek just, hang Derek just called it. I'm going to hang out for just a second here. I'm almost done. In late 2021, it became clear that the Kremlin's restraint had run dry. Moscow issued demands for security guarantees, including a drawdown of military forces already deployed in NATO's eastern members. With respect to Ukraine, the demand was very clear and uncompromising. Not only would Kiev never receive a membership uh, invitation, but NATO weapons and troops would never be deployed on Ukrainian soil. When the West failed to provide those guarantees, Putin launched his devastating full-scale war. That's all, that's all Putin asked for. Okay. Now, whether it's right or wrong, you know, that, that's up to you to decide. But all he asked for was that NATO not uh, make Ukraine a member and not put troops and weapons there. That's completely understandable. If that's all it took to avoid a war, we could have solved it right then. But, of course, they didn't because our permanent war class wants the war. That's the problem. 
Moscow's cruel overreaction deserves emphatic condemnation. However, the culpability of the United States and its NATO allies is also sizable. Moving an alliance that one great power dominates to the border of another major power is inherently destabilizing and provocative. It's also insane. <laughs> Those people who are familiar with even the basics of international relations should grasp that point. It was inexcusable that so many U.S. and NATO leaders apparently did not do so. One can readily imagine how Americans would react if Russia, China, India, or another peer competitor admitted countries from Central America and the Caribbean to a security alliance that it led and then sought to add Canada as an official or a de facto military ally. Canada might be under Trudeau. That's possible, right? Uh, it is highly probable that the United States would have responded by going to war years ago. Yet even though Ukraine has an importance to Russia comparable to Canada's importance to the United States, our leaders expected Moscow to respond passively to the growing encroachment. They have been proven disastrously wrong, and thanks to their ineptitude, the world is now a far more dangerous place. This is interesting. Yet even though Ukraine has an importance to Russia com comparable to Canada's importance to the United States, I don't think people realize um, how that works. So I'm going to bring Derek on. I'm going to get a comment from him on this because uh, Derek was a veteran for a while. So, so, sir, as always, you're free to comment or not. But have you looked into all these, these other factors? I'm curious how they affect the market uh, as we talk money here. But um, this, this war, to me, there was no reason for any of it. And, and how much, you know, as a veteran, you know, if you were called up or what do you think is going to happen you know, now as far as our forces go, to what extent should we do this? Or should we just, you know, pack up and go home and let Eastern Europe and Russia figure this out? I know it's a big question, but it's been on my mind. Um, Good morning, Derek. Are you, you're talking about the war, war in Ukraine? Yeah. Yeah, I'm just yeah, wondering. So, it seems so, it's a, go ahead. No, it's, I mean, my, 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 personal, my personal opinion on it is um, obviously the war didn't need to happen. Um, you know, and the the fact that um, you know, you know the U.S. is indirectly involved. I mean, we're not necessarily um, not necessarily you know fighting the war, but it's being called a proxy war. So what's happening mm -hmm. is um, you know the U.S. is supplying money and and weapons and um, you know potential training aid, um, mm -hmm. you know to to things that they need. So while we're not supporting the war, we're supporting the war. You know, so it's like, okay, well, we're not going to get involved in a war, but we're going to support one. You know, so um, <laughs> is, you is know, that plausible? Is uh, that implausible deniability? Because we all know that they were involved, but they're saying we're not involved, and they somehow, I guess, because they think they say it, it's okay. But we all know better, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, mm. I, I would, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I mean, the 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 bottom line is, is um, you know, the war didn't need to happen. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, you know what what Putin's doing, but um, you know I, I I personally believe, um, you know he waited till the right person was in office to do it. That's interesting. Yeah. So so it, it comes back to Trump, who's like I think the only president that either didn't get us and uh, didn't get us into a war, didn't expand a war. Um, you know, in fact, tried to get us out. And I wish he did so with uh, Afghanistan. I mean, why he didn't close that whole thing down early? Right. You know, right. in his term. Uh, I, I think that's part of Trump's, you know, learning curve, that he didn't realize that what you don't do your first year generally doesn't get done because then the opposition forces mount against you. So I'm very curious to see what happens mm -hmm. when he come back, comes back. Well, let's talk about this in terms of economics, and then we'll get to, the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, get to our report here. Um, or if you want to do that, we can go right to topics. We'll see. But uh, uh, the, this whole idea of, of, of um, war economy, you know, who, who benefits? Who's, who's making money off this? 
you know, why, why do we do this? You know, it's like, why, uh, you know, is Europe making a fortune of the European markets improving because we're expanding NATO? You know, where's, let's just look at from, from monetary position and who's benefiting. I mean, we know the obvious people that are benefiting the U S but does the economy overall benefit from this or does it suffer? Cause we have to borrow all this money for all these weapons and things. Um, I would say overall, the economy typically thrives because, you know, when they're producing weapons and they're they're growing, I mean, that mm-hmm. keeps jobs going. You know, I mean, typically they're more military related jobs, but you have to understand that the raw materials that are used to create those typically aren't military jobs. You know, I mean, hmm. like, you know, the steel industry that's used to produce some of the bombs, um, you know, the, the um, you know, chemical industries that are used to, uh, you know, support the explosives or any of the chemicals mm-hmm. that are used inside of there. You know, I mean, um, uh, the electronics are all ordered from other companies. You know, what I mean, so it, it does support industry, um, you know, so typically a war economy is a is a strong economy. Um, you know, keep in mind, our economy went to crap right after we closed the war in Afghanistan, right? I mean, that's that's not that's not uh, that's not just because we closed the war in Afghanistan, but you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we we closed the war in Afghanistan, and and you know, I mean, the economy was already on the way on the way down, you know. So all that did was 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 kind of pour gasoline on the fire, you know. So um, yeah, I mean, a war economy typically is a is a better economy statistically. Huh. So, but it seems to me though that it's a it's a precursor to a worse economy, because a war economy is based on tax money. It's money that the government spends. It's like Keynesian economics. So the the, the government right. takes tax money that they either spend from the treasury or they borrow. Usually they borrow, and it goes to all these industries. So that does create jobs in the, in the short term. Um, but the the things mm-hmm. that they're producing get blown up. You know, you can't resell right. them. There's no aftermarket. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the, that's the idea, obviously. But the point is that because it's government and because they're spending tax money, uh, so they're taxing people to do it, we're not creating wealth. This is not a wealth-creating industry. So if you look at it in purely economic terms, war uh, is very destructive to the economy because once, you know, once the, the spending stops and the government and the borrowing stops, the, 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 the effect of all that stops, but it was going to have an effect anyway, and then you have to pay for all that borrowing. So they pay for it after the war. They don't pay for it during the war because they're still borrowing. But after the war or after the spending, you've, you're, you've got an inevitable collapse. So it's almost like a war economy guarantees a downturn at some point after it, right? Right, right. I would say so, hmm. yeah, because it, 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 there is, a, there is a, you know, a, an impact to the economy. So, yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. All right, let's see what's going on in the economy. Did you want to do the report today? Um, yeah, we can we can do the report. Let's do it. Let's see what's going on then. Okay. All righty. Um, welcome morning, everybody. This is Derek, your financial with the daily uh, financial advisor with the daily financial market report. Stocks pared back earlier losses to finish the day higher, despite softer than expected productivity growth and higher than expected unit labor cost increases. In the bond market, the ten-year Treasury yield. Uh, surged to a level not seen in 10 years as investors expect further rate hikes from the Fed to combat inflation. The 10-year Treasury is trading at near 4.1%. European markets also pared back early losses, finishing higher as Eurozone data showed inflation easing to 8.5%. U.S. equities closed higher with the Dow Jones up 343 points or 1.05% to 33,005. And the NASDAQ closed up 83 points, or 0.73%, to 11,463. 
and the S&P 500 closed up 30 points or 0.76 to 39.72. Again, in the bond market, Treasury yields closed at 4.07%, higher by 0.08. In the commodity markets, the price of crude oil was up 29 cents or 0.37% to 77.98, and the spot price of gold was down $2 or 0.11 to uh, $1,843.40. This is Derek Park, your financial advisor. We are licensed by the uh, SIPC, and you can get me at 850-995-0082. Yeah. You should tell people where you are, too. <laughs> Town and state and all that kind of stuff. We can include that as well so, so people know where we're all uh, all coming from. So you're you're, oh, sure. you're one of our local folks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, is that, are you saying I was a local folks, or I don't know? Well, I said you are. Yeah. So I'm in Milton, Derek's yeah. case, and so he's just uh, he's just on the road from us here. So uh, it's kind of, we should tell the story how we met <laughs> at some point here. It's kind of funny, um, but uh, I, well, I'll tell you really quickly. I walked into his office and I said, "Hey, do you want to be our our financial guru?" He thought about it for a while. I said, "Yeah, okay, that sounds interesting." And like, what is it? Two years later, now you're still here. So this is fascinating. This is really cool. Um, I was thinking during your report that it seems like we're sort of stabilizing into a recession mode. Uh, it's like it's acceptable. People are, are saying, I, mean, I even had that, I think it was, it was it Europe that inflation has stabilized at 8.3%, you know, or, or you know, that's, that's huge. That's, that's insane. Because in Trump, it was like one, one point something percent, one, two, one, five, whatever it was. But it seems like everybody's kind of getting used to this. Is, is that something that happens in an economy, even a bad economy, that people sort of adjust and they go, okay, well, I got to pay, you know, three to four dollars for gas. Oh, fine. Even though it was like a dollar eighty-seven, you know, a couple of years ago, people think, yeah, the prices are going up, but you know, that's just kind of uh, this the way it goes. It seems like the the the, um, the 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 protests, the objections, you know, you you can announce that the, the interest rates are going up again, and it's like, oh yeah, I guess the interest mm-hmm. rates are going up. Is, is it kind of like an apathy setting in that people get used to a bad economy? Yeah, I mean, there's and 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 I would say that that that's that's what was already starting to set in. Now, keep in mind, statistically, every January, um, you know, or every every time after Christmas, January is a is a strong consumer spending month. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's statistically like nine out of ten. You know, I mean that that ninety percentile, it's going to be a strong consumer spending month. So. Hmm. Um, I was I was almost 100% sure that inflation was going to spike a little bit, um, you know, because that's that's statistics, right? Um, okay. You know, so where the coffin nail is going to be is when the next report comes out in, um, you know, roughly two weeks or I think it's like 10 or 11 days. I'd have to look again. But, um, you know, if, if inflation hasn't ticked down again, um, you know, that, that, that it's on the way back down, then then you know, the market might react negatively to that. Um, you know, I say might, um, you know, uh, there's more layoffs coming. Uh, there's more companies closing stores. So, you know, uh, unemployment is going to spike here pretty soon, um, you know, and then uh, I think that's the, what is it? The National Economic Information Board, NEIB, and I could be butchering that that acronym and name, but um, mm-hmm. they're the ones that officially say whether um, whether we're in recession or not. Hmm. 
So what's going on with unemployment? Is it because that January is a good month? And, of course, Christmas is a good month for especially part-time workers. Uh, and so there's, there's money to be made. Then Everybody's holiday festive. People are going to restaurants. They're spending money. And then, of course, they go broke <laughs> after that. Uh, but they're still spending in right. January because you get all your deals and things like that. And so there's a little bit of a carryover. But once that's over, once the, the, the festivities end, um, you're saying that unemployment is, is going to be going up. And st- why are stores closing? What, what's what's happening um, um, with I, that? I, I saw an, an article um, that uh, Nordstrom, which is a uh, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know if you know what Nordstrom is, but it's oh, a, I was know, in California. Pay-off. I know, I know all about Nordstroms. Oh yeah, they're yeah, huge. So yeah, uh, commonly referred to as Nordies. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I've forgotten so, what. Uh, uh, well, no, I, the one I was thinking was ne- ne- uh, Neiman Marcus, which we used to call Needless Markup. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of big stores out out in San Francisco, but yeah, Nor- uh, Nordstrom's. Uh, I think they shop in Seattle, if I remember. Very high end retail, very big stores, uh, and I think uh, the one I used to go to um, when I was in the Bay Area in the East Bay got completely raided and looted, you know, in that whole time of the last couple of years. And so that's a big problem. But uh, I don't think that's why they're closing because they're closing in Canada, right? Um, I saw I saw the, the article that they are exiting North America. Really. Aren't they yes. based here? Do you know where they're based then? I, I don't know where they're based at, no. I mean, I would assume they're going to go. Um, Nordic. China? Nordic. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. I'd, I'd, I'd have to see if Let me look find the article. Hang on. No, I just look up uh, Nordstrom. So I'll look at them real quick. We'll find out here. I'll, I've been starting to do this lately. In fact, I had uh, um, a, a fellow Blog Talk Radio show host uh, come on my show, call in, didn't tell me initially that he was another host. They'll do that because they want to get each other's audience. And I don't do that. I don't call other shows to, to do that. But uh, they call my show, and it's like, well, if you do that, you know, you're going to get what you get. I, I'm not afraid to argue. I got a microphone. I know how to use it. Nordstrom's. Let's see what their, their corporate uh, thing is. Profile, I guess it's called. Official site. Nordstrom. Let's go to Nordstrom.com, an American luxury department store chain headquartered in Seattle, Washington. I was right. And founded by John W. Nordstrom. Yeah, and Carl F. Wallen in 1901. Wow, I didn't know they're that old. Okay, so they're they're Seattle. So and they're pulling out of out of North America. That seems kind of weird. Huh. Yeah, I'm looking now for I'm the curious. article. Um, okay, you know, and, oh. and it said pulling out of North America, but everything that pops up now says leaving Canada. So, you know, I it might have been a bad headline, you know, a sensationalized headline, but I'm pretty sure I saw leaving North America with young Asian women. I guess that's the, the, the current market they're trying to go for. Um, they're trying to attract people that like to look at pictures of young Asian women. Anyway, this is what I'm looking for North Street <laughs> head. Uh, so they're, they're obviously not leaving the United States. But, but you know, the reason I like talking about stories like this is because, you know, it's, it's very easily relatable. If you talk about numbers, the inflation rate, the unemployment rate, things like that, I don't think people can grasp that as easily. But if you, if you hear something like uh, Nordstrom's is getting out of Canada, now, the, the, the luxury stores, now, now I'm wondering why. Is it the economy of Canada? Uh, is it the, the government making things you know, harder on, on higher-end stores? Did the tax rate suddenly go up? What is it that changed that caused them to do that? Did the article yeah, you know, the article I mean, thing? I'm, I'm, no, no. And I, mean, I mean, I didn't open it up to that extent. I just kind of saw that in the headlines. Um, huh. You know, it was something that's, that's unimportant to me, I guess. You know I mean? It's, it's – uh, I look at it like this. There are certain stores that will succeed in certain markets. Let's take mm-hmm. um, Target, for example, which also didn't succeed in Canada that well, right? Canada mm-hmm. has a bunch of their own brands and their own specific things, and especially Walmart has such a strong hold up there. 
Um, you know, in Canada, they're also a little bit more, oh, I, I say financial savvy, um, you know, or, or you know, I, I guess frugal, you know what I mean? So Target they is a everybody. little bit of a... <laughs> they just price lower. What's, and so they call, it was right. called predatory pricing. They go in and undercut all the competition, which is legal, well, right. you know, unless, unless your government's subsidizing you're doing it. But I don't think Walmart's subsidizing Canada. So it's legal, right. but, but they, you know, they that's carry, what they do. Uh, you know, they carry, yeah. I guess, I don't want to say all lower quality, but, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Target carries higher quality things, mm-hmm. um, you know, so um, not not your standard stuff that the store sold in every store. I'm talking about, like, you know, their clothing and their furniture and things like that, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it did, didn't succeed in Canada, um, you know, so they, they had to close up. I think there's still some stores in major cities and things like that, but, like, you know, they were hitting the rural markets and it didn't work out real well. You know, same thing with Walmart in China. You know, Walmart in China was a was a uh, you know a big flop, right? Uh, Walmart actually in South Korea was also a big flop. You know, they have their oh, own. That's um, interesting. You know, yeah, they have their own version over there called uh, E-Mart. Um, you know, that's in South Korea, and you know, I mean, the South Koreans were like, "Hey, we're going to continue going to E-Mart. We're not going to go to Walmart." So Walmart closed mm-hmm. up. Um, you know, so it wasn't a, wasn't a good, a good opportunity for him, but, you know, so I would say that, you know, Nordstrom, you know, even though they, they catered to the high end retail, um, you know, that, that, uh, it was, uh, you know, they probably did the numbers and said, Hey, we're, we're constantly losing money over here. You know, I wonder if that's the first thing to go in an economy is the luxury items, uh, because the people that afford them, you know, are, are fewer than the folks that go to a more generic store, um, you know, I don't know how yacht sales are doing these days. I'd be kind of curious because they're, they're, they're probably, you know, spiking in prices. Um, but in Canada, when I was a kid, uh, there was like Dominion stores was, was the big store in Canada. I don't know if I got whether they were super. Um, they also had uh, Canada General uh, Tire or something like that. It was a big department store. There was a couple of big, uh, um, oh, Simpsons and there was another store and there was something else. So Canada does have their own stores. They've had their own brands for forever. Uh, there was another one. And then I come to the United States, and I see, see things like Macy's, Sears, and all that kind of stuff. But I remember my, uh, mm-hmm. my Canadian stores. And there, there are, you know, I mean, you know, I think every country has its own stores and probably a loyalty to them. I bet you find the same thing here in the United States. You have regional stores. Some stores are national. Um, but, uh, you know, California has Safeway. Um, New England had, um, I forgot what the other thing was they had up there. You know, and, you know, different places, different, you know, we've got Publix down here in Florida. I don't know, Publix is all over the country. But I think people are loyal. Brand names have a certain loyalty. Okay. Well, let's, let's change things up a little bit here. Unemployment. So is that mostly in big tech? Do, do you know where it is? Or is, is, are those numbers waiting to come out? And how are they going to fudge them? <laughs> because we know the employment, unemployment numbers get uh, uh, massage, shall we say? <laughs> um, it, you know, I mean, I, I don't – the numbers normally trail the, uh, the inflation report. Um, you know, they, they come out and they say, Hey, where unemployment sits, um, Mm -hmm. you know, so, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard to say, I guess, you know, what numbers are going to come out, but, um, you know, I mean, ideally where we're at in this economy, um, you know, especially in the tech industry, um, layoffs are happening, you know, so, um, it's, uh, it's only a matter of, uh, I guess it moving, moving the, uh, the meter just a little bit, I think it's like half a percent. So unemployment sitting at like three and a half or 3.7%. It needs to be like over four for them to say, okay, yeah, we're, we're in recession. 
Well, four seems to be that benchmark. I remember from my economic studies, you know, several decades ago that they said 4% unemployment was 0%. So that's what they counted as zero, which to me is absurd. 0% unemployment is 0% unemployment. But they, you right. know, and I always, I always thought they said that because uh, they wanted to have the unemployment, you know, puts pressure on workers to take less money. Because if workers right. feel that other people can take their jobs, they're going to accept less. Whereas if you have full employment, corporations hate that because then people will say, no, I want more. You know, and, and right. so sort of like rebellion with minimum wage, stuff like that. But um, but as far as unemployment goes, I'm just curious why big tech did big tech over hire? Did they have too much money? Are they anticipating problems? Did they not need them like Twitter? Elon Musk has fired what, a couple thousand people from Twitter so that they don't get to have their 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 free, you know, lattes and massages in the afternoon or whatever else they're doing in that uh that rather bizarre place, but the big tech just overextend. Yeah, he, his, he did that because uh, he saw that there was no need for the level of employment that they had. And he said that clearly, um, uh-huh. you know, he says, Hey, they have, there's, there's too much. Um, he used a term for it, you know, but he said, there's basically too much, um, too much administration here. Um, yeah. You know, but uh, um, you know, when it comes to the other people, I don't want to say that they overhired because I wouldn't know that specifically. But what I would say is, um, you know, when when the economy starts slowing down, you know, mm-hmm. the need for technology may or may not slow down. But they were growing at an astronomical rate because the cost for them to borrow money and grow was very low. Now the cost for them to borrow money is extremely high, right? Mm-hmm. Interest rates are higher. Uh, it costs more for them to issue and sell bonds. Um, so, you know, they it, it slows down, and that means they can't spend more money on growth. So, um, you know, employment is typically their biggest expense. Um, you know, so, so um, you know, as a result, uh, they reduce that number. Um, so, to me, those numbers all make sense. You know, to the common person, it doesn't. You know, because it's like, you know, companies, you know, the idea of the company is for them to, to have a profit margin, right? Well, if they're just paying mm-hmm. people to do a job that is going nowhere, then there's no profit margin. Hmm. How efficient are companies? I don't think I've ever asked you this before, but, uh, you know, I think of all the people that go to work and I wonder what they do and they, you know, the, the, the Dilbert syndrome, right? So people are sitting in offices, they're, they're going to meetings, you know, but how productive could companies actually get by? I'm not talking about artificial intelligence and machines. We'll, we'll talk about that another time. But uh, do the companies, how carefully do they check, especially in good times? that their employees are actually doing what they're supposed to do and the managers aren't just hiring their friends, you know, having a bunch of people sit around all the time and, and they're wasting time. I mean, how efficient are companies these days? Has that, has anybody ever done a really uh, good study of that? Um, I'm sure they have. I don't know off the top of my head, but you know, I would say that, you know, by division, you know, I mean, they put people in charge that are going to keep production at a certain level. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, most companies, um, you know, I mean, they have statistics, they have everything that needs to, um, it needs to keep the, the company running, you know, and expectations on things. So, you know, if those expectations aren't met, that's why people are, are either hired or fired, you know I mean? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, uh, to what level, you know, I mean, that's, that's probably a little bit beyond where I would know, or I would have to do research on, but I mean, I would say Mm -hmm. that they would have to be very efficient or they wouldn't grow to what they are. Take Microsoft, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, where was, you know, where was Microsoft? And I, and and I'll tell you why I use Microsoft. There's only two companies in the United States that have a triple A credit rating Two. you know, I know Mm. that sounds, that sounds weird, right? Uh, One of them is Microsoft and the other is Johnson and Johnson. 
You know, so, um, you know, that, that's basically saying that they're the most credit savvy companies in the, in the United States, you know. Um, okay. So that being said, you know, I mean, Microsoft, where were they 20 years ago? You know what I mean? Where were they? Um, let's go. Let's go 30 years ago. You know, if you're you're talking about when the company was in inception back in the back in the, uh, um, you know, what was it late 80s? I guess so. Maybe it'd be mm-hmm. 35 years ago. You know, so um, you know, I mean, it's just uh, you know the man started it all by himself. Uh, you know, or, or you know, with a handful of people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and where is it today where they employ something like you know 50,000, 100,000 people? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I wonder if they're still coming up with, uh, you know, and I'll decide to say, aside from what Bill Gates is doing politically, but as the company goes, yeah, it makes sense, you know, and it, it's, uh, mm-hmm. so they, they, those 50,000 people have to be doing something, you know, productive or they wouldn't be there. But I'm just, I'm just curious as a company grows, is there a tendency? Because when government grows, you know, I mean, this is the, the opposite is government, you know, where you have, um, you know, people in civil service, they're protected by their, by uh, all kinds of different factors. You can't fire them. So they don't have to be productive at all. And that's like the fundamental difference in terms of, of uh, you know, the economy between a government agency and a corporation. Corporations have to be efficient. Government agencies don't. Yeah. So here's, a, here's, here's some good numbers. I just pulled up Microsoft real quick. Oh, okay. Um, curious. Microsoft's total number of employees in 2020, 2021 was 181,000. 181,000. Hmm. Up uh, up eleven percent from twenty twenty. Wow. You know, so each year it looks like they've grown at least by ten percent. You know, I mean, they have all their mm-hmm. employment numbers. So back in two thousand seventeen, it was one hundred and twenty four thousand. So you know, I mean, if you if you go to what two thousand six, uh, I'm sorry, two thousand twelve. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Or two thousand twelve to two thousand thirteen, they've essentially doubled in in um in 10 years so what are they all doing <laughs> microsoft i guess they're still coming up with new programs new uh new things uh they don't make computers themselves as far as i know but it's all software right oh, yeah they do yeah they do oh they yeah, do make no they, they okay do. oh yeah yeah they make right. uh, the surface pro is microsoft uh the huh. surface pro is like one of the the best uh you know computer tablet hybrid things on the market hmm. good yeah. to know so they uh yeah, they do. They do produce. Now they tried to get into the phone market, which was a big flop. Um, you know, it didn't didn't work out. Didn't yeah. work out really well. Well, they tried. I and I actually had one. I had a Windows-based phone. Um, and what they were trying to do was do what Apple does, which Apple. This is why they have a good control on the market. And and Android doesn't. I don't think they do it as well as Apple does. You know, mm-hmm. Apple has everything integrated extremely well. If you buy all Apple products, all of your products like tie in together, they integrate, they have one master system that controls it all. You can save everything online. They've been doing this forever, right? Yeah, Even before yeah. Microsoft thought it was a thought it was a uh, you know, a possibility. Well, Microsoft now does does that very similar. Um, you know, they've got everything integrated, but you know, Apple's been mm-hmm. doing this for a long time. So, uh Windows and, and Microsoft thought they were going to get into that market, and it just uh, they couldn't get it to take hold. You know, so uh, just it kind of fell apart, and they fizzled off into the sunset. Hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Innovation works. I've always had Apple products. I mean, my phones have been Apple, uh, my computers have been Apple, and I, I haven't had a problem with them. And one of the biggest reasons is they're not as susceptible to viruses. You know, so that was a good thing. And I also knew how to work them. I mean, I wrote my first book. Uh, on, a, on a Mac Classic, <laughs> we're talking about an old uh, a black and white TV screen, but I wrote a book on it. 
you know, so uh, right. I've, I've, you know, I've always had those. It's quite fascinating. Um, something I read, if we just got a couple more minutes here, um, uh, Zero Hedge was talking about the, uh, uh, what is it? The, the treasuries are, are paying like 4% interest now. And I remember watching a Dick Morris thing, I think last weekend that they started like point something percent a few years ago. And now they're 4% interest. What's, what's going on with the treasuries? So, I mean, in a, in a rising interest rate environment, all products, you know, that are, that are issued follow that, mm-hmm. follow suit, right? right? So, you know, the Fed funds rates right at about, I think it's 3.75%, might be 4. I'd have to go look exactly. Uh, uh-huh. You know, so the, the treasuries are right there. I mean, that's why CD rates are on the rise. I mean, money markets are roughly, oh, man, what are they, 4.4% right now with uh-huh. what we have, um, you know, as, a, as an example. Um, 4.37 I'm sorry but still pretty close, oh, close right enough. so yeah um, you know, I mean so so CDs for one year are at 5.1 5.2% you know I mean so uh, you know with the fed funds rate comes comes higher interest rates which means the government has to issue bonds at higher interest rates so our bonds right now our 30 year treasuries at 4% are some of the most sought after in the world so is that going to encourage the government to make more treasuries and actually borrow more money? <laughs> I hope not, but I just did not it actually it's, it's counterproductive because it costs more for them to pay interest. Right. So okay. right. this is, this is really where the government has to start buckling down. Right. Because mm-hmm. um, there's, there's numbers that I've seen and I want to say that it's over 3%, over 3% uncle Sam has problems paying its bills, you know? So um, over 3% treasuries is what it's saying. You know, when they're, when they're, when they're, you know, 3.25, 3.5, that spread, it gets difficult mm-hmm. for them to pay their bills on how much money they spend versus what they have coming in. And we got a debt you ceiling know, so, issue coming for the next couple of months, too. This is going to be interesting. So when it was yeah, treasuries, yeah. Uh, it's like 30-year treasuries, do they pay all the interest at the end of the – do they pay it during the course of those 30 years? I've, I've forgotten yeah, a lot they, of how this they, stuff works. They pay, it, they, they pay it sometimes biannually. They pay it okay. um, you know, sometimes, sometimes monthly, quarterly. There's, there's different bonds you can buy, right? Okay. Um, right? You know, The ones they sell to other countries, I want to say, are the only the biannuals, right? They pay interest twice a year. Um, and then those, I mean, um, um, you know, they can always call the bond and what the bond, Uh what call the bond means is, you know, I mean, if they issue, you know, several hundred million to a company and then Uh all of a sudden uncle Sam comes up with that several hundred million, they can just hand it back to the person and say, you know, here you go. We're, we're buying our bonds back, right? They have Hmm. the right to purchase them back at any given time. Okay. It's not. It is a guarantee. It is a guarantee, right? It's a guarantee to be paid interest, but it's not a guarantee to get get that debt paid off. So when people buy that debt, you know that 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 bond, there's there is a a chance that the bond could be called. Huh. Yeah, I'm curious how this is going to work, especially you know as with the debt crisis. Do you have any? Uh, so my last question today. Do you have any any? Um, uh, guesses, ideas, forecasts, uh, comments on what's going to happen as we come once again to another, you know, raising of the debt ceiling, which, of course, to me is a contradiction. If it's a ceiling, you wouldn't raise it. You know, I want, I want a lowering of the debt floor. I want to, I want to start uh, cutting back on, on, on the national debt rather than increasing it. But is this added pressure? Do they say, well, look at the treasury rates. We have to borrow more money to cover our interest now. We have to meet our obligations. Is this going to be used against us? you know, for the government to justify even more borrowing, which is going to create even higher interest rates as they continue to stand on the accelerator uh, and then hope that the break of interest rates is going to pull it back. But it's not. 
apparently it's not working. Yeah, I I think so. Um, you know, okay. I mean, I I truly believe that I I think something good might come of this. Um, you know, but I do believe that there's going to be a movement in the debt ceiling. I I just personally believe that, that I think that's going to happen. I hate it, um, but I think that they're going to take the easy way out. Well, they always do. <laughs> so that's the problem. Um, so those who don't know, one of our bills here at Action Radio is a constitutional amendment that would take away the power of Congress to borrow money. And what that would do is halt immediately all future borrowing. All the bonds that they've accumulated would be paid off gradually. The national debt would disappear. Uh, Derek, you said, what, 30 to 40 years maybe? I mean, we don't know exactly, but that's still that's not a, that's not a bad time period considering how much money we're talking about here. Uh, every year, that would free up more money in the budget for other things. The national debt would lower. The, the interest on the national debt would lower. Uh, and the government would actually have mm-hmm. a treasury. <laughs> they could spend money the old-fashioned way, right. save it, and then spend it. Right. You know, so um, – right. Do you know anybody could write that? Uh, do you have any Wall Street writer um, or, or reporter who might be interested in covering that bill? No, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I am so rural <laughs> when it comes okay, to I just where I'm at. Well, I think yeah. he had connections. Yeah. It is, uh, you don't you don't do lunch with the financial advisors of Wall Street. I understand that. I'm just curious. I mean, no. I, you know, I don't know. Okay, so I, I mean, know some, we we do uh, about, about the the biggest extent of what access I would have to something like that would be our um, individual product wholesalers, which are, you know, the companies that sponsor investments and they come to us to try to get us to sell their products, if that makes sense, right? You know what I mean? And those guys are are connected to the to the to the big branch of, of the investment company. So that would be about the closest I would get to it where I'm at. Okay. Well no problem. I'm just checking. You know, we're all gonna be big one day anyway. Now, do, so when do, we well, have we're trips, all famous. Uh, called due diligence trips, um, you know, yeah. but COVID kind of put the put the screws to that. Um, and what these due diligence trips do is um, we can go to the NYSE, right? We can go up to the New York Stock Exchange and watch how it works. You know, I mean, these are um, mm-hmm. all opportunities that we have inside of the company um, that I work for, but um, they haven't turned it all back on yet. So, you know, I mean, it's it's. Still, still uh, waiting by the wayside. Yeah, I just wrote a little note to myself here: Zero Hedge, which is one of my favorite uh, financial uh, sites and just sites for general news. But I'm going to get them to cover it. You know, they have the, uh, the the lead character is Tyler Durden from Fight Club. <laughs> a picture of Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. You know, from it's yeah. kind of interesting. Okay. Um, uh, any closing advice thing you want to leave us with? And of course, your your uh, way that people can contact you, phone number, website address, anything you want to give. And uh, let's uh, let's do it again next week. Any any forecast ideas yep. or comments, and then uh, tell us uh, how to get you. No, no, um, you know. So just closing up again. This is uh, Derek Park, your Action Radio uh, financial advisor, and you can get me at eight five zero nine nine five zero zero eight two. There we go. Thank you, sir. Let's talk next week. Yep. Take care. Bye bye. Right. Take care. Yeah. So. Uh, so many things that we'd like to talk about here. In fact, I need I need a national security reporter. But Derek's been absolutely wonderful for two, possibly three years. I'm not sure how long. But uh, we've been able to cover an amazing amount of stuff with the economy. So you're welcome to call in. Usually Pianchi calls in. So maybe he's busy today. Uh, and, of course, our, 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 our new uh, text person up in the, the Netherlands, uh, Sinai77, who's with us a lot of times, too. Maybe he doesn't work Fridays. Maybe they're on a four-day week in the Netherlands. But uh, people are willing, you know, people, if you want to, you can text in. We have live chat. Uh, just get an account at the bottom of the broadcast page, and that will get you into live chat. And you can also uh, Skype 
uh, we have a Skype line if you want to call in from a foreign country. And so all you do then is, is uh, call the Skype line. I have to approve your account, and then you can call the show directly. And so we've all, I've set it all up. So it took a while. It took like four hours one day. But I've set it up so you can call directly to the show uh, internationally once I approve your account. And so that's easy to do as well. Uh, things, like I say, it's, it seems eerily – it's almost too quiet in the news out there. There's something wrong. There's something going on, and I'm not quite sure what it is. Anyway, um, I've got a bunch of articles. I got a lot of things to go through, and I'll see if I can clean up some of that in the course of this hour. And then in the, the top of the next hour, uh, Cowboy Candace, one of my favorite guests, uh, and apparently yours too, by the audience response, is going to be back. And we're going to talk horses and travel and all kinds of stuff. Uh, it's my continued effort to get uh, younger folks involved in the show here. So let's take a break. Let's uh, play a couple things. It is now 8.08 Central Time here. Oh, eight. I think we're going to stick with the um, – We for, for a while we had uh, Friday – um, was starting a bit early, but I think I kind of like the seven o'clock time consistently throughout the week so you can find us so you know when we're going to be here uh, and we can go from there. So let me play you a few things and I'll be right back. This is Greg Penglis for Strike Force, your source for pure energy. Strike Force is a concentrated energy drink that turns a half liter of your favorite beverage into an energy drink. You make your energy drink yourself. Action Radio is an affiliate of Strikeforce, so our listeners get a 20% discount. All you do is add our code, WYL, to the discount code window at checkout. WYL comes from our website, Write Your Laws. So, you can get your energy drink, a 20% discount, and help Action Radio change the relationship of we the people to our government. Not bad. Strikeforce is at StrikeforceEnergy.com. That's StrikeforceEnergy.com. Start your engines. Hello, this is Greg Penglis for our newest shooting range here in Milton, Florida. Stand your ground. My friend Jason Myers and crew are creating an incredible facility for our city. Stand Your Ground is located at 6632 Elva Street. The phone number is 850-789-1776. Their email is standyourground1776 at gmail.com. Here you'll find either in process or already going an indoor shooting range, axe throwing, archery, a rage room, self-defense classes, concealed carry weapons classes, security license training, paintball, a full-service gun store, and 24-7 online ordering. So come on down or contact them by phone, email, or website and learn how you can best stand your ground. From addiction to achievement, that is the story of Mike Lindell. It started with my pillow and now goes to my coffee. Action Radio is proud to be an affiliate of my pillow. Our discount code is the same for all our product affiliates, W-Y-L, which stands for Write Your Laws. My Pillow Pillows are guaranteed the most comfortable pillow you'll ever own. Action Radio is guaranteed to be the most controversial show you will ever hear. Check out their products with our discount code at MyPillow.com slash W-Y-L. That's MyPillow.com slash W-Y-L. Or order now by calling 1-800-544-8939. That's 1-800-544-8939. 
Sleep well so you can wake up and hear Action Radio live. Action Radio. Part of the ADHD Radio Network. The ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, we don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take. That is Action Radio. Joe Biden's Dark Winter. No freedom, no liberty, no guns. No representation. No oil. No coal. No nuclear power. No space force. No constitution. No family gatherings. No vacations. Just taxes. Work. Misery. Masks. Lockdowns. And ever more government. This is what will happen if you let Marxists steal the election. This has been a public service announcement of Action Radio, reminding you it's time to get off your butt and save your country. <laughs> See all the fun we have here? Um, I haven't played that for a while, so I thought I'd, I'd toss that in. So we've got yeah, 47 or so minutes to kind of uh, uh, go over stuff that's happening. I've got a bunch of articles, which I, I sort of save up after the week, and then I get rid of them and start all new articles uh, for next week. Anyway, let's get into, uh, let's get into news mode here um, before Cowboy Candace joins us at the top of the hour. And we'll talk about some stuff. And out into the newsroom, and let's see what we got. So again, I gather things over the course uh, of the week, and I try to find things that not everybody else is talking about. Interesting articles, thought-provoking things, things that uh, that uh, we can kind of latch onto and 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 have some fun with, um, or just to be disturbed by everything else. Um, in the news that. You know, sort of like uh, well, international news. There's a video that just came out, and it's on uh, Free NZ Media. So that's Free New Zealand, or they would say NZ Media. So Free NZ Media or NZ Media. Um, and it's I don't know if I can. I should probably pull it up because this is this is so amazing uh, in, in what was done with this. That you know, let me just start. Let's open up something here. So I can get it. It's a rumble. You can find it on a rumble. I'll tell you where to find this. This is so good and so disturbing at the same time. Uh, it's brilliant. You know, so I want, to, I want to credit these folks properly. But there is an, um, a message, a video message from these folks in the free NZ media um, to 
the uh, Jacinda Ardern, who was the uh, prime minister of New Zealand, who was an absolute terror, uh, who was horrible, who, who was draconian, who was a dictator, who was an absolute communist, and used COVID as an excuse to impose basically a communist dictatorship on New Zealand. And so let me pull up here. Here we go. Liz Gunn, and then L-I-Z-G-U-N-N. You have to see this video. Now, I get videos sent to me all the time. I send out a few, but I try to send out only the ones that are really good. This one is really good. And it's, so, so you go to Rumble, and you look up Liz Gunn, L-I-Z-G-U-N-N, letter to Jacinda. And that would be Jacinda uh, Dern, probably I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was the recently uh, retired <laughs> Prime Minister of New Zealand. So Jacinda is J-A-C-I-N-D-A. And what's so good about this, uh, actually, I'm already in touch with the folks that did this, which is kind of cool. Let me pull this up here, and then I can uh, I'll tell you exactly who it's by. Hopefully, it won't play as I'm doing this. Yeah, Free NZ Media. So that's where you want to go. Free NZ. Uh, they would say NZ, the, the being British uh, Commonwealth originally. So Free NZ or NZ uh, Media. And they're on Rumble. And, and take a look at this. Now, I want to get in touch with you. Well, actually, I already am in touch with these folks. And so hopefully... Um, the uh, the Australian Bill of Rights that, that uh, Jan Clark and I wrote might influence New Zealand. Maybe this is a time when they'll adopt it, or who knows, or at least talk about it. We don't know. But Action Radio is an international uh, presence, and this is part of it. But I would definitely definitely recommend going to take a look at that video. It's on my page. Uh, it's on our international news page. It's a bunch of different places. Or you just get it, go directly to Rumble, uh, and you can find it. That's something you want to take a look at, because if it can happen there, it can happen here. You know, you know Greg's basic rule number two. Rule number one is assumptions are stronger than truth. Rule number two is if it can happen there, it can happen here. If it can happen to someone else, it can happen to you. So you got to look into this you know, and see just how bad things are. You know, what's happening in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, England, uh, the British Commonwealth countries, plus the rest of uh, Europe um, and all across the world. It, you know, a lot of the world was already tyrannical, like Iran, you know, different places. But now it's, it's spreading countries that you never thought were going to become that. Did so amazingly quickly with the cooperation of uh, the government, everybody in the government, and most of the people. And that's what's so scary. So you want to take a look at that. Um, that's going to be very interesting to follow. Ukraine, again, you know, like I said, I made this joke about uh, drafting, you know, Americans. To, but who knows what, what's going to happen with that. That's just, that has to stop. Um, and uh, one thing I forgot to ask Derek was, was Trump's uh, candidacy, how that's going to impact the markets. You know, I think it's going to get stronger. I think it's going to come back. I think it's going to improve the situation. And the permanent work class is going to go absolutely nuts. This is, this is going to be a really interesting campaign because it's not just a campaign against two candidates. It's a campaign against two philosophies. And the philosophies are American first, American patriotism, individual rights versus communism, world government, tyranny, no rights, uh, do what we say. That's the war. And that's, that's what this election is all about. And if you don't see it, you're missing a lot of what's uh, – What's happening? I'll ask Candace about that when she gets on. All right. So let's go to this article I found in the Center for Security Policy. J. Michael Waller, 2023, last month, basically. Well, a little bit beyond that. Uh, and he's talking about the article is titled, uh, A Tactic House Republicans Can Use to De-Weaponize Government. So, of course, I've sent that to a friend of mine in, in Matt Gates' office, <laughs> you know, because I'm in Matt Gates' district. Um, but uh, tell me, you know, this is something that uh, history, again, you look back, you look at, you see so many things repeat themselves. It's really incredible. So J. Michael Waller says the House weaponization of government hearings kicked off an excellent start for public awareness. But without a legislative agenda, the short staff subcommittee will show little enduring accomplishment. And that's a big fear that a lot of people have is that the Republicans will talk a good game, but they won't actually do anything. Uh, I, I share in that view. 
He says House reformers don't believe they can force some of the necessary changes because the Senate and Joe Biden, in other words, the insurrectionist, oppose them. So they haven't prepared a strategic legislative agenda. Yet there is reason for hope and change. That sounds like Obama. Hope and change? Well, the problem was, you know, what he hoped for uh, and what he wanted to change is not what was good for this country. But that's another article. Wallace says an earlier generation of House Democrats blazed the trail for today's House Republicans. Oh, here we go. Learn from the masters, right? Uh, says some lateral thinking and historical precedent can help today's House leaders hack away at the weaponization of the federal government. Under House Speaker Thomas P. Tip O'Neill, who was a Democrat, obviously, from Massachusetts, those earlier Democrats derailed President Ronald Reagan and the Senate Republican majority by banning any appropriated funds from being used for a purpose they didn't like. This is how we can stop the Ukraine funding. Okay, this is why I'm reading this article. Right? It was a narrow measure on a project close to the president's heart. White House attempts to circumvent the restrictions wound up damaging the great Reagan presidency. The measure was called the Boland Amendment, and that's B-O-L-A-N-D. So if you, want to, if you want to look it up in history, the Boland Amendment, named after an otherwise forgotten Massachusetts congressman who opposed a Reagan initiative to oust a Soviet puppet regime near our southern border, the first Boland Amendment was attached as a rider to the Defense Appropriations Act of 1983. That would be Reagan and the Contras. Contra means you know, opposite or opposed. So the Contras were a group that uh, the Reagan administration was funding to try and overthrow the government of uh, Daniel Ortega. No, it was, yeah, in, uh, in Nicaragua. Okay, guess what? <laughs> there we go again. <laughs> you know, there you go again. Ronald Reagan, there you go again. Messing in places that you really don't know about. Anyway, so that's, uh, I opposed it. Not because uh, Daniel Ortega is a good guy. He's not. He's an ardent communist and a dictator. Um, the same reason I opposed the war in, in Iraq. Not because Saddam Hussein was a good guy. He wasn't. But I opposed the war there for us. Uh, same reason I opposed getting involved in Ukraine. Is Putin a good guy? No. Is Zelensky a good guy? No. There's no good guys in the Ukraine thing, except for the people who are suffering under it and dying uh, because the arrogance in Washington and the arrogance uh, in Russia are, are, are killing several hundred thousand people as they, uh, as they wrestle to see who's the most arrogant. But that's a problem. So we had no business there. In fact, we've had no business in any war since World War II. Um, Korea. The problem with Korea was the United Nations split into two countries, making a war inevitable. Vietnam, splitting the two countries, made a war inevitable. You know, and then once we lost the, there were, I guess there are no more countries to split, so they had to find another reason to go to war. Well, how do you do it there? Uh, let's see, we got to, 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 uh, okay. So I got I got a text. I have to read that in a little bit. I'll, I'll take another break uh, and make sure I get it uh, uh, get that corrected. All right. Um, and so think about it, this, this permanent war class, these people that always want us fighting somewhere, you know, you know, I think that one of the reasons that uh, the, the Washington folks wanted to get rid of Trump so badly was so they could go to war somewhere and have it be undeclared, have it go on for decades and have them spend trillions of dollars and uh, borrow the money to do it. This is why the, the, our constitutional amendment to stop the borrowing of money by Congress is so critical. It's going to stop most of these wars. It's probably, probably going to stop all of them because why would Americans you know, uh, want to fight a war unless it's in our vital natu- national interest. So they do these wars by proxy. And that's what Derek was talking about. Now, a proxy in stocks uh, is when, you know, you don't go to the company, uh, the, 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 the corporate board meeting, the annual meeting. In other words, the shareholders are all invited to the annual meeting. And you, you guys have all seen uh, uh, Gordon Gecko, you know, played by Michael Douglas uh, in Wall Street, you know, where he gets up and says, greed, for lack of a better term, is good. 
greed clarifies greed you know he goes on to talk about how wonderful greed is okay <clears throat> it's actually a very funny speech because uh, you can tell it's written by a liberal uh, which which makes it kind of funny but anyway the free market is what's good but the point is that um that these these annual meetings if you don't go to the annual meeting and you still want to vote you vote by proxy in other words you send your vote in uh and you, and you should like vote ahead of time they've been doing that in congress with COVID. you know they, they sit at home and send in their vote well, a proxy war is where you send in the guns, but you don't actually send in your own soldiers. So what's happening in Ukraine is Russia is fighting the United States uh, with Russian troops and Ukrainian troops, but we're, we're, we're playing by, and China's doing it by proxy also. So you got Chinese weapons going in, you got uh, um, American weapons going in, but we're not actually at war with China, even though we're fighting each other's weapons. Same thing happened in Vietnam. China and Russia were supplying North Vietnam. Same thing happened in Korea. You know, China and Russia supplied Korea. You know, there's no big mystery. The patterns don't change. Iraq, I'm not sure what happened there. I think they just let us fight that on our own. Um, and, uh, of course, the previous war was between Iran and Iraq, and uh, Kissinger made the great comment. He says, the problem with the Iran-Iraq war is that we can only have one loser, <laughs> which is a rather, rather astute way of looking at it. Again, it wasn't our fight. So let's go back to the article. Uh, it says, yet there is reason for hope and change. An earlier generation of House Democrats – oh, he already said that. There we go. So let's go, back, let's, talk, let's go back to the Boland Amendment. It says, it was a narrow measure on a project close to the president's heart. White House attempts to circumvent the restrictions wind up damaging the great Reagan presidency. The measure was called the Boland Amendment, named after an otherwise forgotten Massachusetts congressman, you know, Congressman Boland, <laughs> I forgot his first name, right, uh, who opposed a Reagan initiative to oust the Soviet puppet regime uh, near our southern border. The first Boland Amendment, okay, I already said that too. The Democrats denied Reagan's repeated request for a line-item veto. That's where the president would be able to take certain things out of a bill uh, and keep the rest. Okay, I, I tend to agree that Congress should have their bills passed uh, completely, even though some of them are disgusting. So you veto the whole thing. Even if there's good things in it, uh, if there's bad things in it, you veto it anyway. Say, so look, you know, screw you, come up with a better bill. They should do that with the budget, but you know, you know how things go in Washington. So the Democrats, it says, the Democrats denied repeated requests for a line item veto, giving the president no choice. Reagan needed key elements of the appropriations bill as a cornerstone of his strategy to challenge the Soviet Union's nuclear military buildup. Well, if we had another Cuban missile crisis that would become a Nicaraguan missile crisis, you wouldn't need the Contras to, to take care of that. I mean, the country would behind, be behind whatever it took to get Russian nuclear weapons out of Nicaragua. So that's, that's, that's a non-start right there. He says if Reagan wanted the defense bill, he had to eat the Boland Amendment. Reluctantly, he signed the whole package, again, because he didn't have the line item veto. So the Boland Amendment banned any appropriate defense and intelligence funds. The, see, the intelligence funds is key here, right? So the Boland Amendment banned any appropriated defense and intelligence funds, intelligence funds from being used to help Nicaragua's resistance army of mountaineers and farmers to, quote, overthrow the Marxist-Leninist dictatorship of Daniel Ortega and his Sandinistas. House Democrats kept the ban in place with more Boland Amendments through fiscal year 1986. That forced the White House to circumvent the law by supporting private funding and seeking foreign support for the Nicaraguan resistance, or Contras, as I told you before, and to make a deal with the devil that became the Iran-Contra scandal. Yeah, that's when uh, Oliver North, not one of my favorite characters, uh, got up before Congress and admitted, I'm going to tell you the whole truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay, well, tell us. Basically, they took money from Iran, <laughs> sales of arms to Iran, uh, and gave it to the Nicaraguan Contras. Well, you can't do that. <laughs> you, you, just, you know, that's treasury money, uh, especially without a congressional authorization. See, you can't just, the president can just take money from one sale of arms and put it where they want. 
<laughs> I disagree with that completely. I was with the Democrats on that one. Anyway, as he says, because they had they have promised no more omnibus spending, House Republicans can do their own version of the Bolin Amendment this year to roll back the weaponization of the federal government. So I'm curious what form that would take. Um, he says they can attach a Bolin-style amendment to the 2024 Justice Department Appropriations Bill. They can attach one to appropriations bills for the Pentagon, Homeland Security, the IRS, and the intelligence community. The House Republicans can attach the bo- attach. Boland-style amendments to ban federal spending across the entire government on different elements of weaponized wokeness like climate change, ESG, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. They can do it to block certain politicized actions of the Justice Department. They can block any funding towards a new FBI headquarters, which they should, uh, until the Bureau has cleaned, uh, cleaned up and cleaned out. They don't need to bargain with the Senate or the White House if they just hold firm. As long as they keep up the heat on the weaponization of government, the public can redirect that heat onto their elected officials. So it's puzzling to me why the Democrats didn't steal the House this time. You know, they're in for a lot of trouble. You know, it's too late now. <laughs> they can't, they can't just say, oh, we've got more ballots, you know, like they usually do. So it, it is surprising to me that they didn't steal this one, but uh, let's see if the, if the, the, the geldings. The GOP, the Gelding Old Party, has the gumption to actually come up and do something uh, about this. I don't think they're necessarily going to do that. All right, so let me see if I can find. Okay, those are my two. Or let's see if I got another article here. All right, so speaking of hypocrisy, <laughs> here's another article. This is from LifeSite. Has the U.S. government been building bioweapons in Ukraine? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> the short answer. Um, in fact, Josie and I had a challenge on that, and just to, just to clear that, Josie was talking about how. You know, these bioweapons are there. I mean, these bio labs are there and all these things are going on and, and Putin's going into Russia to expose them and show the world and all that kind of stuff. I'm not convinced that's why he's doing it. And I'm not convinced that um, that uh, the ones that we have there are all going to be part of some big, you know, cabal later on. But do I think we have bioweapons in Ukraine and, and bio labs? Sure. Why not? You know, Ukraine is like a, the, 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 the laboratory of world government to, to sort of, you know, try out things before they impose them on the rest of us. So anyway, this article is in LifeSite. That's L-I-F-E-S-I-T-E. It's an opinion piece. And let's see if I can find the author here below the picture of uh, Zelensky. Uh, written by, come on, guys, who wrote this? Is that going to tell me? Huh. Well, it says Mercola. Maybe it's, is it Dr. Mercola? That's interesting. We'll take a look here. Oh, it is Dr. Joseph Mercola. So this means it's good. <laughs> Friday, February 17th, 2023. So this is just three weeks ago. And so he says, a global, he says, has the U.S. government been building bioweapons in Ukraine? I've wanted to get to this article for a while, right? A globalist cabal is carrying out a long-ranging plan that involves the use of endless wars and pandemics to legitimize centralization, digitization, dystopian mass surveillance, and other totalitarian controls. It's exactly what happened in New Zealand, which, which is why that's such a great study. So Dr. Mercola says, in the United States, meddling in the Russia-Ukraine war really as altruistic as the Biden administration claims? <laughs> perhaps not. No, is the United States meddling uh, as altruistic as they claim? And he says, perhaps not. A number of revelations have come into light that raises questions about our involvement. So let's, let's get further into the, the Ukrainian thing, and hopefully this will explain more of what we're doing there and why we shouldn't even be there. He says, for starters, as detailed by Russell Brand in the video, uh, which you have to go to the article to see, Ukraine is slated to be the largest, most comprehensive test lab for globalist takeover tools such as digital ID, 
central bank digital currency, uh, a social credit system, and even an artificial intelligence-aided judicial system, all under the guise of, are you ready, humanitarianism. And who is helping to pay for the implementation of this Orwellian techno-dystopia? That's right, the United States taxpayers. That's you and me, folks through their security assistance, which as of October 20th, 2022, had surpassed $98 billion. Okay, this is before the war started. <laughs> Wait, no, when did the war start? No, it started March of 2022. This is now March of 2023. Okay, so six months in, uh, they started, they'd already spent $98 billion. As reported by Reclaim the Net, the general promise is that in the future, the Ukrainian government and big tech will be, quote, closely interlinked. Wasn't that special? Well, it would have to be, wouldn't it, in order to be 100% digital, this also means that government will be privatized as tech companies will own and operate every last aspect of society and government. So that's it. Let me read that again. This also means that government will be privatized as tech companies will own and operate every last aspect of society and government. So what he's saying, in effect, is that we thought government would control the corporations, but it looks like the corporations are controlling the government. So does big tech see themselves as the masters of the universe, as the rulers? Well, you look at Bill Gates, you know, you look at some of the leaders that come from big tech, you look at a lot of the big tech leaders. So anytime the corporations and the governments get together in a single entity, it's called fascism. That's what fascism is. Fascism is control of the total means of production, um, all the rights, all the privileges, all the, uh, the laws of society by a corporate government combined singular entity. That's what fascism is. So now I'm curious. So I, say, I haven't actually read this one yet. I like to do that sometimes just because it's as spontaneous for me as it is for you. And feel free to ask questions. But if that's the case, then the government would be controlled by the corporations, which is even scarier than the corporations being controlled by the government because government's not efficient. <laughs> corporations are uh, for the most part. It says all government services will be online. Society will be completely paperless and cashless. Government will be 100% digital. AI or artificial intelligence will run the court system. Education will be 100% digital, as will the healthcare system and customs. Hmm. At the same time, President, President Volodymyr Zelensky has imposed some of the world's most aggressive anti-worker policies, passing legislation that deprives around 73% of workers of the right to union protection and collective bargaining. So wait a minute. Hey, Democrats. <laughs> So all you Democrats who are supporting the, UN, uh, the, the Ukraine war are supporting President Zelensky, who, who opposes everything that you say you're for in terms of unionization. So you're a bunch of hypocrites, but we knew that anyway. Next category, Ukraine is a test bed for new weapons. I told you the U.S. goes to war every 10 years to test all their weapons, right? It says, according to a January 6, 2023 CNN report, Ukraine is also a test bed for Western weapons and battlefield innovation. So we don't really have tactical nuclear weapons, but the Russians do. So they can get to see how their tactical nukes work, nukes work, and maybe that'll spur our government to say, maybe we need some tactical nuclear weapons too, which, are, which will be an interesting debate. And then they, our government can say, well, look, the Soviet Union, Russia, pulled out of the last um, you know, nuclear weapons, uh, what do they call it, limitation talks, the SALT talks, strategic arms, what is it, nuclear weapons treaties. So, well, they, they're not in the treaty. We don't have to be either. So, you know, the permanent war class says, look, markets, money. Time to borrow more money, tactical nuclear weapons, because the Russians are doing it. <laughs> this is how this all works, right? He says, examples of, in, of such in, innovations include a cell phone app that allows frontline soldiers to accurately direct fire onto specific targets. Gives new meaning to the word, you know, dialing up a target, right? 
inexpensive grenade-dropping drones, 3D printers that allow soldiers to repair heavy field equipment on site, and other MacGyver-like battlefield solutions. Well, that's fascinating. Soldiers can direct fire by phone? (laughs) Call in a strike? I mean, literally call it in? (laughs) Wow. The U.S. and Western allied militaries are studying how their own weapon systems are performing in the field. Told you. Test bed. One alleged source familiar with Russian intelligence told CNN, oh, there's a reliable source, Ukraine is absolutely a weapons lab in every sense because none of this equipment had ever actually been used in a war between two industrially developed nations. This is real-world battle testing. Wow, isn't that neat? (laughs) Let's see how our weapons work at the expense of several hundred thousand people, right? That's sick. Anyway. He says, what we're suggesting to you now is that not only is Ukraine being used as a testing ground for weapons and an opportunity to to create profit for the American military industrial complex, but subsequent to the war, where they're also creating privatization opportunities for companies like BlackRock, the socially responsible investor, they also use it as a testing ground for favored globalist modalities such as mass surveillance, digital IDs, and uh, CBDCs, which are, uh, what was that? Money. (laughs) It's a money thing. And look back up here. Uh, it's, it's like currency, digital, something or other. Anyway, cashless, digital, current, whatever it is. Okay, we'll figure it out. All right. Uh, here we go. Everybody wins. <laughs> That's what the article says. Everybody wins except the Ukrainian people. The initiative, the plan, the vision, the scheme, while we're consistently told that Russia attacked unprovoked, is that some of the most powerful interests in the world are benefiting from and profiting from this complex. Well, doesn't that make sense? Okay, so put this all together over the course of the show. What have we talked about? We've talked about that the Obama administration basically uh, did everything possible to get rid of a duly elected president of, of Russia, uh, Volonovsky, whatever his name was. Oh, I'll have to look it up again. Oh, Yurichenko. There we go. And they put in Zelensky. What did Zelensky, Zelensky put in then? I'm not sure. I'll have, to, I'll have to take a look. Anyway, whatever it was that they put in a pro-U.S. government, uh, and of course the Russians were pissed off because they took out a pro-Russian government in, uh, in Yurichenko, who was there before. Uh, anyway, so, so that happened. You know, and then, of course, the, 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 the global military complex gets in there. You know, the bankers and the military contractors, industrial contractors and everything else. And, of course, the military intelligence folks want to be there to test the weapons. So they test the weapons. They test the globalists. They test the uh, currency stuff. They test everything. This is like a prelude to, to world domination. But Ukrainians are different than a lot of other people in the world. Uh, and it's one country. So what they, the globalists can do to one country, I don't think it's going to transfer. Now, at some point, I'm praying that Americans start rebelling big time. And you can do it in peaceful ways. Just don't play. Don't get the vaccine. Don't go to government schools. You know, don't listen to government-sponsored news. You know, there's a lot of things you can do individually that are not necessarily going to draw attention or conflict to yourself or the government. Um, so th- and that's what you want to start doing. Me, I'm openly in, in conflict. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the radio openly proclaiming that we have a stolen election, that they're all corrupt, that uh, the Ukrainian election was thrown, and that it's a global test bed for tyranny. I, I just openly said that, okay? You know, I'm still here, hopefully, for a long time. He says, Dr. Mercola says, my concern is that the Ukrainian people will not benefit in the short term. There's potential for nuclear conflagration. I think that means war. And it looks like now, even for the rest of us, there's an opportunity to pilot ideas and schemes that will ultimately lead to more and more centralized authority that cannot help but lead to less individual and community freedom for you and your family. Yeah, that's pretty much it. He says, in short, a globalist cabal is carrying out uh, a long-ranging plan that involves the use of endless wars and pandemics to legitimize centralization, digitization, dystopian mass surveillance, and other totalitarian controls. That comes from the summary above. 
In addition to all that, we also have the, the CIA and the U.S. Department of Defense's Threat Reduction Agency, DTRA, funding biological weapons research in Ukraine, even though at the time that the contracts were issued, Ukraine was recognized as the most corrupt country in the world. <laughs> so, so think about the thing about the logic of that. The U.S. Defense Department, you know, through their Threat Reduction Agency, um, funded biological weapons research in the most corrupt place on the planet. Hmm. What could go wrong, right? It was a bizarre decision, to say the least, unless, of course, there was some benefit to having hazardous research done in a country where corruption is the norm. I wonder why. The Reese Report video above, and again, get the article, right, reviews the connections between the U.S. government, Hunter Biden, the World Economic Forum, founder Klaus Schwab, and the Ukraine Biolabs. And so the quick summary of the key points is, according to China, the U.S. is operating 336 biolabs in 30 different countries. Russia claims the U.S. has more than 30 biolabs in Ukraine alone. That's interesting. After Russia secured biological weapons laboratories in Ukraine, the U.S. Embassy removed all evidence of connecting to the U.S. to the biolabs in Ukraine from its website. That's interesting, too. In a, Seattle, in a Senate hearing, excuse me, <laughs> a Senate hearing, Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Newland, there she is again, confirmed the presence of biolabs in Ukraine and that they contained weaponized biological agents the State Department feared may be used by Russia to start World War III, if we don't start it first, right? The U.S.-run biolabs in Ukraine, a violation of Article I of the Biological Weapons Convention, which prohibits the development, production, stockpiling, acquisition, or retaining of biological weapons. Hmm, no kidding. The illegal, the illegal biological weapons development is paid for by U.S. taxpayers through the DTRA. This is a U.S. company called Black & Veatch, that's V-E-A-T-C-H, has built bioweapon labs with the DTRA in 2003. Well, let's go way back. In the city of Kiev, Black & Veatch share an office with a company called Metabiota. Well, the plot thickens. Metabiota is a key player. Metabiota is a key player in the scheme as it provides scientific and technical consulting services to the DTRA's biolabs in Ukraine and Georgia. So that's interesting. Remember, Georgia, we talked about that earlier, where uh, McCain, was it McCain oh, the Bush the Elder went and tried to make Georgia, which is, if you look where Georgia is, is right under Russia. <laughs> it's not even in Europe. Georgia, is, that's where Stalin came from. Georgia is one of the big breadbasket uh, territories like the Ukraine. And Georgians were starved by the millions by Russia. Um, and so to get Georgia, that would be like, um, you know, I guess Russia and China invading Mexico uh, and uh, having Mexico become, you know, part of China. <laughs> That's kind of the equivalent of, of putting uh, Georgia in NATO. Uh, anyway, it says at the core, it's also a core partner of the United States Agency for International Development, the USAID, uh, PREDICT program, which is a pandemic threat program that sought to identify viruses with pandemic potential. Oh, yeah, and then make them worse, right? That's what gain-of-function is. And has worked in close collaboration with the EcoHealth Alliance. We know who they are. Uh, in fact, Metabiota founder Nathan Wolf has served on the EcoHealth Alliance's editorial board since 2004. Now, let's, let's talk about EcoHealth Alliance. EcoHealth Alliance, of course, is the research company Dr. Anthony Fauci, known as Dr. Fascist here at Action Radio, used to funnel money to the Wuhan Institute of Biology, long suspected of being the source of SARS-CoV-2. While Fauci, Dr. Fascist, has denied funding gain-of-function research at the WIV, that's the Wuhan lab, the National Institutes of Health has confirmed it. According to its mission statement, Metabiota, what if they're connected with Facebook, 
Metabiota seeks to make the world more resilient to epidemics by providing data, analytics, advice, and training to prepare for global health threats and mitigate their impacts. Well, these seem to be people that are making the world you know, safe from pandemics by causing them, by, by creating viruses that don't exist, <laughs> the bioengineering or bioweapons. And they're doing that to make us safer from, those, from the bioweapons they're creating? I don't think so. Well, we have to create them because somebody else might. Oh, please. Anyway, it's just through data analysis that they, they help decision um, makers across the country and industry to estimate and mitigate pandemic risks. Okay. But they also claim to support sustainable development. And we know what that means, right? Which seems to have little to do with pandemic risk management. The term sustainable development is one promoted by Schwab, the founder of the WEF, that's the World Economic Fund uh, Foundation, and is part of Schwab's plan for global great res- for the global great reset, a transhumanist revolution, aka the fourth industrial revolution. Okay, so we're going to do a show probably Monday on the on the uh, on the fourth industrial revolution because I don't know exactly what that means, but I do know what the global great reset means, and I know what these folks ha- have planned for us. And so sustainable development that means they determine you know, what is sustainable? Sustainable generally means like replanting trees, okay? So you've got a a managed forest. So every tree you cut down, you plant another one so that the forest size doesn't change. That sustains it. Um, Fishing. You only, you you take so many fish, but you don't take enough that they can't breed and make more fish. Uh, Crabs off the California coast, Maine lobster, same thing. You know, like the, the crabs, they only take the male crabs off the coast of California uh, so the females, which can lay a million eggs, will bring a whole bunch of more crabs there. So you do that. So you leave the females, take the males, and uh, it seems like a little discriminatory there, but they're crabs, so it's different. Um, but one male can, you know, with one female, can create millions of, of tiny little crabs, okay? So you don't have that many guys. <laughs> it's just the way it goes. Uh, what happens after war? You know, guys and the women repopulate. It doesn't take that many guys to rebuild a society because a lot of them are dead because of the combat. So the guys that are left, that didn't go, they're the ones that repopulated the country. That's how you get nations of cowards, by the way, but that's another story. Anyway, so sustainable development is, is like this catch-all phrase where they say that anything you do that's not sustainable, in other words, won't make more of or keep the same, can't be done. Now, they say oil is not sustainable energy because once you burn it, it's gone. Okay? But there's so much of it now, it doesn't matter. We're going to have something else to replace it long before it disappears. That's how it works. Anyway, it says Metabiota's founder, back to the article, is a deep state insider. So Mercola says it's not surprising then to find out that Wolf not only has close ties to the WEF, but is also a rising star there. He is a WEF young global leader graduate uh, and was awarded the WEF's Technology Pioneer Award in 2021. Okay, so who are some of the other young global leaders? Well, we've got the American uh, legislators. Uh, I think the governor of Georgia, did he go there? I don't know if he was a young global leader, but I know he went to the World Economic Forum. It's Forum, not Foundation. I'm sorry. Um, uh, but Trudeau, um, what's his name? Justin Trudeau in Canada. You know, he's a, he's a young global leader graduate. Um, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, who terrorized New Zealand, like uh, Trudeau's terrorizing Canada. She's a graduate of the, the, the Young Global Leader Program. So the young global leaders, what they really should call it is what I call it, terrorist boot camp. Okay, so I'm going to write that down. Young, because I want to include that in my new. Um, I'm going to be putting out a, a conservative, a patriot glossary, pretty soon of, of terms. Uh, I think that's what I call like uh, I don't call them rhinos, the transgender Democrats. That's one of those terms. So young global leaders, we're going to call that <laughs> terrorist boot camp. <laughs> 
if you have a, a definition too of something that you want to rename, uh, uh, please, please let me know because I'll be including these uh, in an upcoming article. I've got a bunch of articles. In fact, I just uh, did one uh, last night. And so I'll tell you about this. Let me finish this article, then I'll tell you about that. And then we'll get to Candace and then where we go. Actually, this is a long article. How much more is there? Uh, there's a lot more. <laughs> so maybe I'll just hold it up here. You get the idea. Well, maybe let me see how much more I want to do. Uh, Metabiota's funding sources, uh, Metabiota DRTA, Metabiota and Rosemont. Um, it's got FTX laundering money. Let me just um, get through just a now. Let me hold it up here. <laughs> got about you know 15 minutes left. And I want to I want to talk about some other stuff. So let me see if there's anything else. I think have I played everything? No, I have. This would be a good time to take uh, take my next uh, next break here before Candace gets here. So it's 8:47. You get the idea, and then I'll come back and tell you a little bit about some of our articles and things. So let's play some things here. And I've got other things I can play to, to amuse myself because uh, I've talked enough for today. But you get the idea. Go to the Mercola article. So I'll tell you where it is if you want to find it. Uh, it's Life Sight, L-I-F-E-S-I-T-E. It's at, uh, it says the article is, Has the U.S. government been building bioweapons in Ukraine? Uh, it was written Friday, Friday, February 17th, 2023 by Dr. Joseph Mercola. So now you can find it. All right. Be, be right back. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive, conveniently located at 6715 Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida, right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stars Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stars Automotive. I go there. You should, too. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery? Alternative treatments and choices? I don't. Which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. 
She is the founder of Great Care. And now as an affiliate of Great Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. Great Care saves you both time and money. They provide medical efficacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is greatcare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H care.com. You can email them at greatcare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Great Care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. This is Greg Penglis. So what is Action Radio? It is a radio show with its own citizen legislature. That's you, the listener. It is a fully interactive system of listeners, expert guests, social media, writing bills, legislator input, bill submission, lobbying, and citizen action. Action Radio is the future of talk radio using all the available technology in one completely integrated new system. You are listening to Action Radio Online with Greg Penglis. The webpage for all Action Radio shows and podcasts is blogtalkradio.com slash citizenaction. Please share our show with all your friends and family, both nationally and internationally. The guiding principle of Action Radio is this. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed. Yeah, it's kind of funny. My uh, my chair was sinking down, and the microphone was up by my nose, and I thought, this is wrong. <laughs> this, is, this is not where it's supposed to be. So I got that fixed. Um, just a, an embarrassing moment, which I think you'll find as amusing as I do. Uh, either – now, I'm going to blame technology. This wasn't my fault, right? This is uh, – um, Cowgirl Candace got listed as Cowboy Candace. So I think it was a spell check that I automatically assumed I must have meant – you know, cowboy, so that's what they put it in instead. Or I just goofed. <laughs> Chances are I just goofed. So anyway, so I've corrected it on the show notes here. It now says Cowgirl Candace returns as of uh, 9 a.m. this morning, and that's in about uh, eight minutes. And you can call in early if you want. I don't care. If you're listening now, feel free. Um, but i got one more thing I want to go over before you get here. But, uh, yeah, this is, don't be afraid to correct me. I, I make mistakes all the time. Fortunately, most of them are correctable. <laughs> you know, uh, if I say something horrible on the show, uh, the worst thing, thing that could happen is that I have to delete the whole episode. And so far, um, that's, that only happened once when a phone number got mistakenly revealed. And I'm really careful about that. But uh, I remember trying to call somebody on the show. And I got their answering machine. And, of course, they gave the phone number. So I don't do that anymore. That's why I don't call people on the show. That's why guests have to call in because uh, that's not going to happen again. All right. So I'm doing a whole bunch of writing now on Substack. Now, Substack is this amazing um, place that I've discovered some of my, my older articles I can put on um, they're, they're not uh, it's not up to the whim of the publisher to judge whether my stuff's worth putting on uh, and so some of my more controversial uh, ideas get out there and so I've done the most controversial and my favorite article so far is the nation of government where I take Washington DC and describe it uh, as a country you know with borders and, and passports which they call credentials um, with their own funding source and, and the United States states become colonies and so the colonies pay to support the nation of government. And so I describe it basically as a, as a British monarchy ruling the U.S. colonies, but in terms of Washington being a monarchy uh, or a deep state 
you know, oligarchy or, or terrorist force or a tyrannical force basically ruling the states to which the states mistakenly believe that they are subordinate and subservient to the nation of government. And they're not. And that's something we have to change. Anyway, so I wrote an article. Uh, I have a chart. I've got a lot of information on COVID because I was right there at the beginning saying this is wrong. The, the government response is a total hoax. We don't need the vaccine. We've got early treatments. They work. You know, hydroxychloroquine, later ivermectin, vitamin D3, vitamin C, azithromycin for pneumonia. All the, the Zelenko protocol, we all knew. You know, and we all knew from the results from, uh, from the, uh, uh, the people that were treated and cured and, and, and helped by this that the early treatments worked. You know, we knew that the later treatments, remdesivir and ventilators, didn't work because most people died. Once you got on that remdesivir ventilator death march, you know, I called it and still do, uh, the outcome was not good. But the outcome with early treatments was, was really good. In fact, the vast majority of people, uh, almost all, you know, did, uh, did, much, did fine much better and recovered. Of course, obviously nothing's perfect and, and, you know, folks died. But no, folks died at nowhere near the rate from early treatment uh, than they did from, uh, from the remdesivir ventilator death match, march. In fact, the biggest problem with early treatments was when they weren't given early enough. But if early treatments got there early, and you didn't have like a huge set of comorbidities, you know, age, weight, diabetes, things like that, chances are you're going to be okay. And those people are still with us. So the success of the early treatments are the people that are still here. The failure of the remdesivir ventilator death march are the people that are not here. And those are the ones listed in the big statistics saying, well, this is why you have to get vaccinated, so you don't want to end up here. Well, that's because <laughs> we know that's creating another problem. So I kept a lot of records back from those early days. I kept a lot of articles back from those early days. I kept articles saying that uh, Congress was briefed, that everybody was going to be exposed to COVID in a short time. We're all going to get herd immunity, and that's how it's going to work. They didn't care. They went with the mandates anyway. They, they followed, you know, Dr. Fascist and the health Nazis. So I wrote an article last night, the CDC chart that proves COVID was over by 2020, July of 2020. And then it said the subheading is, guess what? You can't find this chart anymore. So I'm just going to read a little bit of it, and then I'll describe the chart because, obviously, this is radio. Uh, so you want to go to gregpenglis.substack.com and click on the first article, gregpenglis.substack.com. That's where you find this one. And then I said, what I want to show you here is what I believe was the last honest chart on COVID put out by the CDC. It proves that COVID began, peaked, and ended between March and July of 2020. Oops. Now, this doesn't mean people did stop dying in mid-July from COVID. People died, you know, you know, I guess they're still dying from COVID. The difference is it's, it's not a pandemic. It's not a spiking. It's not a continual increasing of people. It's not, you know, packing the hospitals, causing, you know, mass destruction all throughout society. Uh, people are dying from this like they die from whatever they die from, flu, cancer, heart disease, the things that people normally die from. So COVID is now on that list. But it's not a pandemic, and it hasn't been since July. So I found this thing called the Provisional Death Counts for Coronavirus Disease, COVID-19, from the CDC. Uh, and it has week ending 2-1-20 through 7-11-20. So 2-1-20-20 through 7-11-2020, basically uh, February 1st to July 11th. And what you'll see is that uh, there's two axes on this thing. On the left side, it has the, the count, which is the amount of people who have died. All right? And then on the bottom, it has a timeline. So the timeline in February is zero. <laughs> so sometime early, it looks, like, so it looks like the beginning of March is when I started recording the first deaths. Now, I'd already reported in February that uh, this was uh, that the government response is a hoax, that vaccines aren't the only way to go, that we need early treatments. And I wrote a bill to that effect, which are February 27th of 2020. So we are way ahead. We were so far ahead that I think they tested their algorithms out on us for suppression because I was immediately suppressed after that. 
uh, and after my show March 2nd, where I said that uh, COVID is curable, that this is not a big deal, that we can get over this. Um, we've got uh, chloroquine, later hydroxychloroquine. And I said, stop panicking, everybody. Uh, there's no need to take your rights away. There's no need to do anything. There's no need for 15 days to slow the spread. There's no need for vaccines. There's no need for any of that. Just get early treatments, get over it, and we'll be fine. March 2nd, 2020. That's what I said. The show's titled uh, uh, Chloroquine, Elderberries, and I think we had Mad Moms who were doing a, a family uh, court show at that point. So you look at the chart. This is the chart that you can't find anymore. It's very simple. Uh, and what it, what it shows is as about mid-March, a very steep rise, very steep rise in the number of deaths for all age categories because you look at the squiggly lines and they're based on age. So obviously the oldest had the, the highest death count. The youngest had the lowest death count. It's actually very low. Uh, and it's got, uh, what is that? Uh, that five, I'm trying to blow up the chart. Let me see if I can make it a little bigger here. And uh, big, big, big. I'm sort of playing with my screen here a little bit. You know, I can't. Uh, what I can do, maybe I can drag it onto my, my hang on. Let's see if I can do this for a second here. Um, I'm going to do this, do this, move this chart over to here. It's not working. Come on, chart. Ah, there it goes. And now I'm going to make it very big. <laughs> And, uh, okay, let's see if we can make it very big. And I can read all this kind of, this, this neat stuff here. So, so, oh, I can't make it very big. Here we go. All right, so I probably should have done this before the show. <laughs> it would have made, would have made a lot more sense. So let's take out, uh, hang on. Let's go back to there. Go back to there. It's not working. Do-do-do. Don't mind me, it's live radio, I understand. Ah, there we go. Put that, put that article away. Put my screen back up so I'll see when Candace calls. And, and there she is. <laughs> uh, so let me, uh, well, I, let, let, me, um, let me get her on the show here and see. Let's move a couple more things around. Let's put that here and let's put that there. Uh, again, live radio. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm supposed to be efficient and, and everything's supposed to work out. And it just doesn't <laughs> as neatly as that. So let's bring her around. Hey, Candace, how you doing? Welcome back. Hey, good morning, Greg. How are you? Well, fine, except for my rather embarrassing uh, labeling you as cowboy. I mean, I do know that I do know there are two two genders. I know that. I do. I, I know you're you're female. Yeah, and I do. Sorry. No, you're good. We just we know how the world works, and I'm like, oh yes, I'm going to be the next millennium of uh, what uh, what this crazy world has came to, right? So exactly. So 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 all all, all cowgirls are actually cowboys. You just don't know it yet. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, we're we're toughest cowboys, maybe even tougher, but <laughs> we still well, have more parts debate. that we need. <laughs> we, we should have this debate. Let me just go over this chart here because I don't even know if you've seen this one. Um, but uh, if you check out my article from from last night, Substack, gregpenglis.substack.com, and this is how this this myth is is horrible. Uh, so it says provisional death counts for coronavirus disease, COVID nineteen, and it starts again mid March. And it's got all age categories. They are 0 to 24 years, 25 to 34, 35 to 44, 45 to 54, 55 to 64, that's me, 65 to 74, 75 to 84, and then 85 and above. And, of course, the 85 and above had the highest death count at over 5,000, uh, it looks like, here uh, for April 15th. So this, this chart peaks. It goes up uh, the ages, the older, the, the higher the death count. And so you've got five plus four plus three plus, and that's how you get the, whole, the total death count. So it peaks April 15th, which is tax day. And then it drops. And all age categories yeah. drop dramatically. So by 7-11, um, so July 11th, pretty much all the death counts are at zero. So my wow. question is, if COVID is such a, 
such a panic, such a, uh, a dastardly disease that we needed a vaccine four or five months after we've gotten herd immunity, then we were lied to. And this is the proof of it right here. That's why I brought this article out. So yeah. let's talk about COVID. For, uh, go ahead. Uh, knowing, hearing this, that there's a chart that shows the COVID death counts went to zero pretty much, or at least leveled off at a very low level as of July, and yet the vaccine came out five months later. Now what do you think? I mean, with the COVID thing, and I, I think we had briefly spoke on it the last time we met, I, I do think that it's more conspiracy-based, and there's a lot of things through the government and that we don't, you know, as a civilization and an individual, we don't get the, to see or to hear. And similar to what we're taught in school, and, you know, we believe one person and we run with it. So we're believing the people that we're supposed to trust the most, which I don't. I don't know how you feel about that, but I don't trust the government one bit. No, I never have. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, you know I, I look at I'll it tell you my story in a minute. history, yeah. <laughs> similar to like the Holocaust and and just throughout yeah. throughout history, like how things came to be. So looking at the COVID, I just think that this is the new way for them to kind of get us under their wing even more um, and to keep us where they want us to be. Um, so I I believe that the vaccine really was more of a hoax than anything. I mean. They came out and spilled the beans saying there was going to be immunity. And then, you know, that went shot out the window as soon as it came out. And then, oh, no, you have to have these vaccines. And then because people were so against it, then they pushed it through our career bases. There were so many careers that, I mean, I knew numerous friends that lost their job because they absolutely refused that vaccine. And I think that's taken our rights away as an individual. My mom, my mom had to go in and get a a note from her doctor saying she should not take this vaccine in order to keep her job. And I think at that point, that was where, you know, the government realized, hey, like the, they're, they're fighting back right now. So we have to continue doing more things to keep them scared, to keep them believing, and to really just make it to the point where most people felt like they absolutely had to, or it was a risk of losing their livelihood. So um, luckily I was not one of those because I am self-employed and, um, you know, and I actually started my business during peak COVID season. So I opened up my business in 2020 and at first was like, yeah, well, this is going to be the stupidest thing that I've ever done is let's open up a new business (laughs) in the middle of a crisis. But it was, it worked out because more people got to be outdoors. And I think it really backfired on the government because a lot of people did get to, refresh and reprogram their brains because there was so many people that got to work from home or did lose their job or did stand up for themselves and quit their job saying enough is enough. And they got to make that uncomfortable change in a, in a fearful situation and progressed out of it. I've talked to so many people that's like, you know, COVID changed my life completely and it was for the better. And it was all, because we program ourselves that this is what we have to do. We have to work a nine to five. We have to do it this way. And so I really think that um, COVID backfired more than I think what the government wanted from us. I mean, I know there were several thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that went with it. And I know just as many people that did get the vaccine. And um, But I don't know that many people that passed away from it. And the ones that I do know that passed away from it was more so – they they couldn't really claim COVID related. It was more pneumonia related or related from the hospitals. So um, that's that's where I stand on the COVID. 
Hmm. It's not like having you on the show. I've been talking the, the, the last couple hours. It's really great to have you on so I can kind of sit back yeah. a little bit and, and, and listen. So this is very cool. Um, I've got a bunch of notes here, and you mentioned trusting yeah. government. And so I'm curious about it to you and your friends um, and, and what the current attitude is because I wonder if there's more trust in government because of the schools, the government schools and things like that. But my story is I grew up in three different countries, you know, Canada, Australia, mm-hmm. and the United States. And I had a family that was like the ultimate in dysfunctionality. You know, I still had food, I had shelter, and all the obvious things, so nobody ever knew. Right. But internally, it was like constant conflict. So I never trusted my folks. Uh, I learned very quickly not to trust governments when I started doing history and research. And then there's this, I've talked about this before. There's a fabulous special called the world at war and it's narrated by Lawrence Olivier. It's like 24 parts and it goes into much of world war II uh, in incredible detail. And it, they, because it was made in the sixties, a lot of the folks are still alive. Now they're older, but a lot of people that participated yeah. uh, were still around so they could actually, it was like living history. And so when I got to the Holocaust and I first learned about it at 10 years old, uh, I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> and this is a, a modern Western, you know, industrial nation with allegedly, you know, modern principles doing something as barbaric and medieval uh, or ancient times as anything you've ever seen. And I thought, well, if they can right. do that, you know, if they can do it in Germany, uh, and then you hear about Japan, and then I heard about China and Russia and the different atrocities throughout the 1900s, um, you know, if they can do it there, they can do it anywhere. And I knew it could happen here. Right. And so my trust for government at 10 years old was basically gone. And so I come by this mm-hmm. naturally, but I don't think a lot of folks were as skeptical as I was. Um, but in Australia, it's interesting. We, you know, whereas a lot of kids would talk about sports here, we talked about war because <laughs> Australia was, yeah. was a lot closer to it. So given your attitude is different because you're, you're highly independent. That's why you're on the show. Um, but you're, you're different than I think a lot of, of, of younger folks, but what is the attitude as far as trusting government and, and people that, you know, that, I mean, the people that, that, that took the jab, did they do it because they had to, or were there those that were absolutely willing to thought of it as like their civic duty, their patriotic duty, and then tried to shame other people. So what is kind of like the range, you know, of, of opinions that you had over that with folks, you know, um, you know, most, most of the people that I engage with, including the ones, um, again, through the, the start of the business, you know, I didn't have people coming out with masks, riding my horses. A lot of them, almost everybody that I met was very against it and was very like, you know, like mm-hmm. we, similar thoughts of we thought it was a, a hoax. I mean, there was certain people that was like, oh my gosh, we got to get the vaccine. We got to get the vaccine or, or would say, hey, it's, you know, it's fine, you know, because there was a couple of times that, you know, as a business owner, I had to say, hey, look, you know, I was around people that was tested positive for COVID, either we can reschedule your ride, or we can continue. And there was people that was like, oh, no worries, we got the vaccine. So I think, again, going into that fear factor, some people was like, oh, my gosh, you know, they listened to the rumors, they heard the horror stories, they presumptionally just went ahead and got the vaccine and then they were like oh well I'm fine because I got the vaccine and I really just don't I can't fathom how that really works but in general how people how people think how can I get away from this fear let me run to what is out there that's supposed to cure it all so they ran for that vaccine to help you know deaden that fear but then they didn't follow the protocols afterwards such as well we still need to wear a face mask or things of that nature which I never did unless I was forced to. We did go to Disney throughout the whole thing, and, it, you know, it, it kind of just cracked me up going, you know, with those face mask things. But, you know, that's another day and another story. But 
I, I didn't really have a lot of people that came to me and was like, it's a patriotic thing. I have to do it because they're telling me to do it. It was mm-hmm. more of being forced or by fear. The fear or the force is, is really the people that came. And there was some older generational um, people that came out that was like, oh, you know, I, like I remember my dad's friend who was like, oh, you have to get it, you know. And so there was maybe a 2% of a patriotic, you got to do it because, you know, I stand by the government and I stand by what they say. Um, mm-hmm. The rest of them I do with more fear, fear-based fear and um, and just enforced to in all reality. You know, I'm just the opposite. I think the patriotism is, is uh, you know, uh, who, I forgot who said it, the last refuge of the scoundrel. So, so you have to do it. It's patriotic. You know, do it for your country. No, you're doing it for power, for a powerful elite in a deep state. Yes. But yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, I'm curious. Like I say, the you know, the age differences are always interesting, and this is why I love having you know different generations on the show just to kind of mm-hmm. compare attitudes. I would think, I would think that folks you know a little older than me, the '60s generation, which I was mm-hmm. almost in. I was like the '70s disco crowd in college. Was really boring. <laughs> I really wanted something much more fun to identify with, but no. You know, I, I got to college when Saturday Night Fever came out. So, you know, you're stuck in the times you're, you live in. You don't get a choice over that. Anyway, but the 60s I thought were very cool. Uh, I love the idea of questioning authority, and I love the idea that, uh, especially the Vietnam War and other things like that, that people were questioning, and those same people are not questioning Ukraine. And they didn't question uh, Iraq, and they didn't question Afghanistan. They didn't question Bosnia. Right. They didn't question all these other wars that we've been involved with that have absolutely no purpose whatsoever that I can see. Mm-hmm. But during the 60s, and it was because of the draft. And the one difference between the Vietnam War and all the other wars is that in Vietnam, it was before they went to a volunteer military, and it was a draft. In other words, you could be taken against your will uh, or someone mm-hmm. that, that uh, you know, was near and dear to you, friend, family, and could be put in, in the army and sent to Vietnam to go fight in a jungle completely against their will. And so the protests for Vietnam ended when the draft ended. The war went on for three more years. And it's always fascinating to me that uh, the protest was really not over the war. It was over the draft. In other words, mm-hmm. take somebody else if they want to go, but uh, you know, do something stupid over there. It doesn't affect me. But if it does affect me, now we've got a problem. And, but right. at least they were questioning. At least they were questioning. And I'm wondering, you know, do we need another 60s? You know, where, where are the folks that are going to get out there? And uh, you know, where are the modern hippies? I'm kind of like, a, yeah. I guess, a hippie patriot at heart because <laughs> I really like that, you know, that psychedelic stuff. Uh, I do. I mean, I, you know, I, I lived in San Francisco 30 years. I was there. I saw Jerry Garcia, the Grateful Dead, you know, in Golden Gate Park playing. You know, when I was there, oh, wow. I was older, you know, but uh, it was a cool experience. Yeah. You have to get past the, uh, uh, the crowds and the marijuana smoke, but uh, it was a good time. <laughs> yeah. And he was there yeah. with his own band. No, that's a true story. It was one of my first uh, adventures in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. It was a big, wide open area, uh, large crowd, huge cloud of marijuana. And I walked to the center of it and there was Jerry Garcia with his own band, but it was, it was good. It was like seeing the Grateful Dead. I was happy. Yeah. But uh, but the attitude was like, and he's like, I waved at him, and he waved at me while he's playing. Hey, yeah, but, hey, I'm new in San Francisco. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, fine, you know. Um, but it was a different attitude. So how do we get yeah. that back? How do we, how do we become, I guess, patriotic hippies? This might be something for you to work on. It might be might be an idea yeah. to think about. Oh, you know, yeah. this is ideas. This is what we do here. Go ahead. What do you think? All the time, people tell me that I have the hippie soul or the true soul because I think it it goes back to. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if robotic is the word, but I feel like, you know, we're in a phase where 
robotically we're forced or we're supposed to do this this way and this is the only way that you can do it. So, I mean, I do think that at least for the younger generation or maybe my generation, which is between the 25 and 30 range, is, um, mm-hmm. you know, we are a lot more free-spirited. We are fighting against authority a lot more than, you know, a lot more than what I thought, you know. So I I do wish we had the patriotic hippie, you know, the, the carefree, you know, I'm going to run outside and dance in the rain and not be judged um, type of attitude. And I, I, we are trying to push back, but it's just not, I just don't think that we have found the right cycle of how to push back the way that we need to. Um, and that, that might be something that we can continue working on and maybe getting some more people to speak about it as far as, like, how they went from, hey, this is how I was supposed to live my life. And I, I heard recently that, like, even, you know, we there's not as many younger people having kids like it used to be, so we have a mm-hmm. baby shortage. And I, I think, you know, that's, as a woman, that's our way of fighting back. We don't want to grow children <laughs> or raise children the way the world's going. I mean, that's my aspect. I would, you know, part of me wants to have a, wants to have a child just to kind of, hey, it's my legacy. I'm supposed to live it on, you know. But the rest mm-hmm. of it, I'm like, you know, I am battling tooth and nail the way the world's going, and I don't agree with it. So why would I put on that much responsibility on myself to bring something, uh, you know, of me into this world to continue with what we're fighting for, because I do think that there is going to be another, I think history repeats itself. And I do think Mm -hmm. there's probably going to be another civil war. There is going to be a fight between the government and the population, the civilization. So I know it's coming. Do I think it's in my timeline? I don't know, but I do think that history will repeat itself and there will be a change because there is so much greed and so much judgment going on that, you know, we, we will, we will take that stand and we will fight back. Um, Same thing with our rights to have um, guns. You know, I know that that's been going on for several years as well. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think we were really concerned when Obama was in office and now with who we have in office now, I just, you know, I think that's when it's really going to fight back because so many people want to protect their, their family and their homes. And that's, you know, we have to arm ourselves and that's our right. We should be able to arm ourselves. We should be able to protect ourselves when that time is needed, whether that's from the government or from the guy that wants to rob us, you know, that's just the way that I see it. And it was the way that I was raised. Yeah, no, it's interesting, and uh, especially attitude towards kids, because I see uh, fighting back as having more kids, you know, more patriotic kids, kids yeah. that grow up homeschooled, kids that grow up uh, learning right. about history and are independent. And so I think the danger is actually just the opposite. And I understand not wanting to, to bring a kid into this world, but there's never a good time. You know, it's just it, right. there's, always, there's always bad times and good times, you know, as someone who's raised a daughter. I can tell you that, uh, you know, being a dad is one of my greatest experiences. It was a blast. We had fun. Was it a perfect world then? No. We made the best of it. We right. had a lot of fun. You know, it was in San Francisco, and we had adventures like every weekend. We'd go somewhere new, a different neighborhood. It's like touring the world, yeah. living in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, and so because, you know, all those – we went to the Armenian neighborhood, you know, where Rice Aroni was created. And we went to um, the – Hispanic neighborhoods and, and tried everything uh, um, from Argentinian food to, uh, you know, Colombia, <laughs> you know, I mean, just different places, Chinatown, you know, uh, the Italian, the, the um, Northeast section, you know, uh, all these yeah. different, North, you know, all these different places, 
that you could go and it was great. And uh, was there crime? Yeah. Was there danger? Yeah. You know, was there a corrupt system? Yeah. But you know, you're still there. So what I don't want to see, and this is something that is the opposite problem. Uh, the left talks about what they call the, you know, the, uh, the great replacement, uh, how all the white people are afraid that all the black and brown people are going to take over. And I've, I've, I've talked about this as being a bunch of nonsense. The real great replacement is that for Americans, the, the government, their choice is uh, fentanyl, uh, abortion, um, yeah. you know, uh, government schools, indoctrination. Um, you know, a lowered lifespan, vaccinations, mandates, tyranny. That's what they choose for Americans. The government, given the choice for Americans, this is what the option is. However, for illegal aliens, it's hotels in New York, free health care. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's a walk yeah. and live where you want. It's free transportation. You know, I mean, if you're an illegal alien, uh, the very people who are the, our biggest criminals right now, criminal class being brought in by the millions, that's, that's what they get. So there's the great there's the the the, uh, the great replacement. It's replacing Americans with yep. a peasant class of illegal aliens. So quite honestly, right. you know, the more kids, the better. But that's still an individual choice. That's that's a decision, you know. And, and right. it, like for you, are you going to be more happy, more useful, more productive, more doing what you're able to do, you know, with kids or without kids? That's a decision. The big one. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know, the, the idea of ever, ever doing anything because you think you have to. I think we all make that mistake at certain portions of our life. Those are the, only, the regrets I have are doing things that I thought I should as opposed to doing what I wanted to. Uh, and independence yeah. is something I definitely want to do. <clears throat> and I'm really enjoying it. But I have to ask you, I want to change the subject a little bit here. Cause unless, well, when, let me get your comment on that. I want to give this away too quickly because it's a huge topic. But uh, do you see Americans as being replaced? I, I do. I mean, I think it. We're, we will see part of it. I think we will, again, make a comeback as we always do. But, mm-hmm. I mean, looking at it now, I think, um, and I haven't done my studies or my research on it, but I, I do believe that if we really did a statistical testing right mm-hmm. now, um, we would find that we are being overtaken. Um, but if, yeah. if you look back in I mean, like I have Scandinavian in me, I have Indian in me. So we all look back and we all see, okay, well, we all had to flee from somewhere at some time. So it, it might just be a new America by the end of it. Um, and they, I don't think they will understand our rights as much, but I think they might fight. And this is years from now. I don't think this is coming in right now because the government is giving so much, you know, but there's another topic we can talk about the American dream. Like what is the American dream now? Because mm-hmm. America's in America cannot really live the American dream. I cannot get a single loan or a single, you know, grant for me starting this business, even though it's now I might not do be doing the right research, but I do feel that if I was somebody coming in from a different country and, and went to the bank and said, Hey, I'm going to do this. They'd be all mm-hmm. for it. And they wouldn't ask all the questions that they ask now, but, that, you know, that's where I see, you know, how, how can a true Americans really have an American dream when we are struggling, when they allow people to come into our country with nothing and provide them with more things that, that most, most of us as children or as adults will see um, without having to work tremendously hard from it. And I don't mind working by no means. I don't want the government, I don't want to rely on the government for any of those purposes, but the, the point is that, you know, our government is not supporting us or the people that have fought 
for their for our country, all the people that's in the military, and, and we look at the homeless and look at how many that are disabled or look at how many that did fight for our country that came back mentally unstable, and this is what we give them. But yet you can be an immigrant who I'm sure had the same suffers or even worse. I mean, I, I'm not, I've never been to a different country, so I can't talk about what what they have, but they're not getting to see the real America when they come over. They're not getting to see the poverty that we see as an individual. They're not really getting to see what it's like to be on the streets after fighting for <laughs> fighting for the world that we being patriotic and fighting for what we think is necessary or the people that are disabled. I mean, if it wasn't for me and my husband and, and, Family support, I can tell you right now, my dad would probably be on the streets because of his disability. I mean, he was struck by lightning on the job and never even got workman's comp out of it. So we, as a child, we ended up homeless for several months, you know. So looking at that, um, I do think that there is going to be a new America, but it will be it will be years from now when it settles down. Hmm. Yeah, um, just a just a quick caution here. You're, you're welcome to share anything, but uh, you don't have to, you know. And so you want to think um, just that anything that, that's, that's really personal to you, uh, I tell a lot of folks this, because we are podcasts, it does stick around for a while. And mm-hmm. so feel free to, to, to hold back and then think about something that maybe you want to bring up next week or something like that. I mean, I appreciate you sharing mm-hmm. this because I, mean, I, I share a lot of stuff, too, that I think, do you know what I should have said that? <laughs> you know, so I, I understand. Yeah. I got, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. All right. I got Pianchi in the line. I'll bring him on in just a second here. Um, oh, yeah. There's something, as an immigrant, I, we weren't fleeing from anything because I, w- I was born in Canada. Uh, at eight years old, I went to Australia. And at 12 years old, I came to the United States. And so none of these at the time, these were all free countries. But my folks wanted to come to the United States as the best of them. And, you know, I had a Canadian yeah. mother and an Australian father. So I understand that. So we, we weren't fleeing persecution. We, and a lot of people don't come here right. um, because they're being persecuted. You know, they come here because, you know, it's better, but you still have to come here legally. And in fact, Pianchi and I, we talk about right. this kind of stuff all the time. But here's the question I have for you before I bring, before I bring him on. The American dream. Uh, being an American, you know, is, is I think the government's lost sight of what it is. That America yeah. is not just a country. It's not just a nationality. It's an idea. You know, it's an yeah. idea based, on, based, based in freedom. And people don't come here, you know, well, so they do now, but they didn't used to. People that came through Ellis Island, uh, the people that were not being persecuted, they just, you know, or maybe like the, like the Irish from the potato famine. Yeah, they were trying to get away from the potato famine. I understand that. But they still came to America because of the idea. The idea is freedom, right. individuality, individual rights. And so the American dream is based on that. So my, my question is, do you find um, that people have lost their dream? They've lost their idealism. They've lost sight of what it means to be an American beyond just the citizenship that the dream, America, you cannot have an America without an American dream. You cannot have right. a country without, without the ideas and the ideals and the belief in freedom. And, and that's the real destruction. And I see this government, this false government, this stolen government, this tyranny, this deep state, this globalist fascist cabal of, of the corporate government merging as, as taking away the dream. That their sole goal, yeah. not just taking away your freedom, but taking away your soul, your dreams, your ambitions, your ideas, all the oh. things that make you, you, all the things that you yeah. want to try and that I want to try. You know, and if they, right. if they can do that, we've lost it. So, you know, yeah. you and I have a lot of work to do. Yeah. yeah I certainly do agree on that. 
Okay. I, I yeah. That is that's it. You know, the freedom and the the true American dream with the freedom and the ideas and the independence. You know, uh-huh. and it, it's a struggle every day. I mean, looking at you know when I started the business, all the hoops and things that I had to run through just to uh-huh. get this up and going. I'm sure there's still several things that I'm missing that you know that's a that's a topic that we won't go there but you know it's it's one of those that it, it is a true struggle for sure I understand listen I think action radio was a picnic <laughs> no it's still a struggle I'm under at least you're not under <laughs> censorship at least I don't think so um, I'm under huge uh, corporate government fascist censorship every day. Uh, what's, yeah. Let's get the name of your business out there, too. Let's get the name and the contact information. We'll do it again at the end of the hour. But uh, folks, you know yeah. where it is. So feel free. Shameless plugs. Part of being on my show is you get to make all the shameless plugs you want. So <laughs> enter in. Sign in, please. Who are you? Where's your business? What do you do? Let's get that on the, on the, on the record here. Yeah, absolutely. Florida. So my business is Believe the Journey Horse Services, and I do trail rides and lessons and horse therapy, camping and packing, and whatever idea you might throw out at me, I might be open to it. So, <laughs> you know, but mainly it just involves the um, it involves the horses and, and the time that's needed in nature. So there's so many people that just come and say, hey, I just, I just want to be in a barn. You know, I haven't been in a barn in years, and I'm like, sure, why not? Why don't you come on out? Um, but I do a lot of my stuff was pretty much off the property, but here this year, um, I've been having more and more people come and really just enjoy that part of life with me. So I'm more open to that. But as far as coming out, of course, you do have to call ahead of time because I can't tell you where I'm going to be at any given day, um, or what trail location I'll be at. But cold water is where I do most of my trail rides as well as yellow river. Um, and that That's all up near the, the Alabama uh, border, or where, where is that about? So yeah, folks can look on a map so and get an idea. Hudson, um, it's, it's still a Milton area code. Oh, okay. Um, it's closer in. And then Yellow River is going towards Crestview, Florida. So so anywhere between Munson, Florida, and Crestview, Florida, you will find my truck and trailer somewhere between that. Unless I am on the road, I do love to travel, and I love to take the horses places. So I try once a month to really uh, take that time for myself and go see somewhere new. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do, at some point, would love to maybe even offer where um, more experienced riders or riders that come and and, um, really learn how to ride and dedicate their time with me to experience more than just our pine trees and sands down here in Florida. So there might be a, a time where I offer traveling trail rides where I say, hey, this is the location I'll be at in Alabama this weekend, and I'll either bring people with me or I'll try to get locals from that location um, through the southeast is what I'd like to do. You need to be up on the mountains. You need a mountain trail ride. The other thing <laughs> is beach. You know, uh, can, yeah. can you uh, take the horses down to the beach? Can we go ride in the surf? Down here in this part of Florida, you cannot take the horses on the beach. Um, there is a couple places in England. It's just, it's not allowed. Freedom of oh. America, it's not free. Um, <laughs> so you know, you know our first piece of legislation, don't you? You know, you know <laughs> I have to change this. That uh, yes, this is our we first bill. Ride on the beach. <laughs> we need we need a designated horse because I did this with my daughter. I took her. We went to Half Moon Bay, okay. which is this beautiful little town south of San Francisco. It's where they have the Maverick Surfing Competition. It's a gorgeous town. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an earthy, crunchy, hippie. It's wonderful. Uh, and they have the Pumpkin Festival in the fall. And so we, we used to go to all these things. 
But one day it was the it was the the game before the Super Bowl, whatever the playoff is before that. And so everybody's watching football. Nobody's riding horses. So I'm look, going by Seahorse Ranch. I'm looking at all these horses. And I'm saying, you know what? <laughs> look at my kid. <laughs> we're going to go horseback riding. She says, we're going to do what? <laughs> so we're going to go ride a horse. When? <laughs> right now? Right now? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so we pull into this place. And I said, are you guys open? Yeah, we're open. Where is everybody? This is the watching football. Well, that's dumb. <laughs> I said, can we ride your horses? <laughs> Hell yeah. So we hopped on. We ended up uh, running, running, running through the surf, you know, and I was sore for about a week. Apparently I hadn't been on a horse in 30 years. Now it's been longer, you know. But, uh, yeah, so I got, I, we, got, we got to talk about that aspect, too. Let me bring on Pianchi, and I'm sure he's going to want to talk to you uh, yeah. as well. So, so you're on with uh, Cowgirl Candace, who I unfortunately mislabeled, uh, uh, I misgendered <laughs> in my notes earlier, uh, which is kind of funny, actually. Pianchi, good morning, sir. Yeah, you know, it's funny how they allow nudist beaches, but they don't allow the horses on the beach. Uh, Wait a minute. Do we, have, do we have a nudist beach? Candace, do we have a nudist part of the beach? Uh, not, not, not that you would know where. I'm just curious. If, yeah, you know, I know I know. back in the day there was a nudist beach down huh. in Navarre, but I do not huh. think it is. Uh, we actually had a nudist campsite also off Avalon, if I'm not mistaken, but... I do believe those times are gone or at least hidden or not talked about as much. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So, but the funny not, thing is, is the government has no business restricting either one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something that was going on way before governments even existed. But, why you know, it, the thing that it, you may mention. Go ahead. Yeah, I like the, uh, I think that it's great that you can take young people out of their surroundings and take them out to the solemn essence of the countryside mm-hmm. and take them in a barn so they can smell the odors uh, that's in the barn. That's, that's, I mean, that's something different. And right. when you can go outside and don't hear nothing, I mean, can you imagine going outside and don't hear nothing? And that's the way it is in the countryside. There's no city sounds. It's just a solemn a quietness has come over everything. Oh yeah, that's actually a fabulous question. Uh, I'll let you answer, Pianki. But do you let your your riders have ear pod things or things stuck in their ear? Are they are they cranking music while you're riding, or do you no, want them? Uh, I I really and I'm not judgmental. So if I have somebody that comes oh, with ear pods in, it's like I'm going to be like, hey, you don't need to do that. But I have found, um, and I've had a very small handful of people that get out there and they get on their phones and. You know, it, I look back and I'm like, oh, they should really be paying attention. But um, but most, almost everybody, when they come out, you know, they're pretty chatty the first 10, 15 minutes. And then when we really start getting on trail, you'll hear the silence. And it always makes me smile because I know what's going through their mind. And I'll look back and I say, it's quiet out here, ain't it? And they're just, they're amazed. You know, so a lot of times, and there is times people get out and they think they want to listen to music or they, they first get on their phones and then they really take in and they're like, oh, my God, I can actually listen to the different birds and I can view into the butterflies that are flying around me or they start looking at trees. And, and I'm really good about pointing things out, too. Like, guys, look, look over on this side. There's, you know, there's these butterflies or this, you know, we don't have a lot of um, dogwoods, wild dogwoods trees anymore um and i for the first time this year and it could be just the first time that i'm noticing them but that's one of my favorite trees and i've noticed two on the trail at cold water and i i make sure to say look you know this is a tree that's really not wild anymore and here we get to see two of them in the wild 
Um, and there's a couple of species of uh, fox squirrels that you don't see very, very commonly unless you're out in that way. And then a lot of times when I do my evening rides, you get to see deer, and it just fascinates people. So I, more people in tune with it than I expect, um, and they really just, they eat it up. They eat up the silence, you know, and there might be the rest of that 30, 45-minute part of the trail that I don't really hear them talk at all because they're just taking that time in, and people need that. Jackie? Yeah, that's uh matter of fact, phones and earbuds and things of that nature should be prohibited mm-hmm. on the beach and also should be prohibited in uh, those solemn areas that you're talking about because actually what they do, they're introducing noise uh, pollution to the natural yeah. habitat. You upset in the birds, you upset in the trees, they can hear these things. Right. And you're upsetting them. So it should be a prohibition when people are out in those areas that those instruments should be not allowed. They have to yeah. leave them in the cabin. Yeah. Well, I don't know about the earpods because you don't really hear those outside. The person hears them internally, but I don't think the the noise, you know, affects anywhere else. But you know, the old boombox days, <laughs> with these really loud, you know, huge yeah. radios that people were were were, were playing and uh, doing all kinds of stuff. It's okay on the street, you know, but it's it's not so good. Yeah. Those wagon rides, you you uh you get to hear the boombox on those wagon rides. That Dixie National there in Mississippi was quite hysterical, but uh, you know, we weren't really Trump the woods. So um, Dixie National, it was my first year doing it this year. I took uh, my Mustang. I had a friend um, that I actually met on a horse ride, and he is facing his dream, trying to be a horse trainer. So I did allow him to do some work with my Mustang that I have that I've done some clinics with. Um, But basically, the ride is similar to the one that um, we had talked about last time in Louisiana. Um, Mm -hmm. It takes a week long, or it's a 111 miles, I believe. You start in one part of uh, Mississippi, you end up in Jackson, Mississippi, and then um, you do about 18 to 25 miles a day. And you just, there was 387 riders and 44 wagons when I went, the three days that I went. So it was, you know, we just all get together, we get on our horse and we ride all day. We eat from the wagons, you know, we just have a good time, go through the towns allow people to see our horses and then at the end of it it's a big old rodeo big old parade party you know just a big you know it it amazes me what we actually do with these horses and and what we put them through honestly but I mean it's it's a good time and it's you know for a moment we forget about our responsibilities and our bills back home unless you're you're like me and my friends that got our trucks stuck in the in the mud so instead of eating the fish fry we were uh too busy getting our truck stuck out because we got it sunk down in some mississippi mud i thought our mud down here was bad but uh that, <laughs> that mud sure did get us. there are songs about that mississippi mud stuck, yeah. man. <laughs> we had a 40-foot yeah. trailer behind us and and we sank it so we spent about three hours getting that truck out as everybody else was eating that night um so we we still had responsibility on that ride but for the most part you know you just got to see i got to see children oh my gosh it was children from the age of four learning how to drive the wagon you know to see the older generation the men that were 88 and 90 still chucking along on their wagon it just it's nice to get that many 
that many people in in a crowd for that many days and you just meet so many new people and you get to watch the younger generation and the older generation just ride and, and be carefree for that little bit of time that we have. So, yeah, you got to maximize that in your life more as much as possible. So yep. we'll get to a point, point Pianki was making earlier. Uh, he talks about urban folks getting out. Do you find that a lot mm-hmm. of the people that, that come ride are not necessarily, you know, all country or spend a lot of their time in the country? These are people a lot of times that are in cities that have never done this before, um, but they have that romance. There's a huge romance in this country over, over cowboys, cowgirls, horses, cattle drive. Yeah. You know, the Western is still like one of the dominant forms of entertainment, and Yet the Western period in our country was what thirty years uh, of cattle drives yeah. and growing towns, you know, between the Civil War and when the trains came through everywhere. Um, so this is mm-hmm. a limited time, but it's a very romantic time in our history. And so I think uh, as as we need our dreams, we need our romances too. We need our uh, we need our past. And uh, even though we're not living exactly the way they did, it was pretty harsh on those trails sometimes. You know, when you ran out of water mm-hmm. and you know. And uh, all kinds of other things could uh, all the dangers that uh, that people are facing. But as far as it goes, oh, yeah. but there, but that romance, that that inspiration, which can lead back to the American dream. In other words, the freedom of yeah. getting out there. Um, and do you find that not only do you get urban people, but people in this world now, everybody's so isolated. They they have their iPods. They they they're in their car. Um, if they're not in a cubicle at work, they're in their home. Uh, they go to places, you know, and they're, they're, everything is isolated. Even if you go to the gym in a class, you know, it's still just you. So the isolation, is, I think it's one of our biggest problems. And we need to talk about this. This is going to be a, this is a big topic. But what you do in the community where you actually talk to other people and, and through the horses. The horse is, is, is a metaphor. The horse is a, is, a, is a vehicle to get from one place, just a transportation. I'm talking about a, a transformation. You know, from one place mm-hmm. to another, from a mental state to a different mental state, from different to a different emotional state. And as people talk to each other and they go back and they, they see the romance of the horse and the wagon and everything else, you're taking people to a place that a lot of folks have lost and can only get mm-hmm. to when they go through this transformation. And so I kind of, right. you know, I kind of wish it for everybody. I want to do too. You, you know, <laughs> I hear you've picked out my horse already when I go riding. So that's, that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But do you see the, the transformations that people go through? you know, especially in a big event like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There. I mean, there's been so many. I mean, I have people that come back to me. I, I don't have a lot of people that just ride one time. Now, I'm not saying that there's everybody that can afford it or that can come out every weekend, but, mm-hmm. I mean, all, there's some that come out annually. They say, you know what, we, we make it a priority to come out once a year because we just get addicted to that feeling and that transformation and they just say they feel so good and um i had one just this past weekend that came out last year and this is the first time they brought their son and their son just was like you know absolutely amazed by it and and it's cool for me to watch some people just have a natural niche um i got two two girls different ages one is seven and one isn't um i believe she's around my age um that neither one of them grew up around horses neither one of them have really rode and within four lessons they're our last lesson they're out there just trotting and laughing and you know they just look so natural it's just such a natural thing and so for me as a trainer and a person offering this opportunity it's so nice to allow us to have that moment to breathe and to allow us to have that moment where we are living fear-free in that little moment not saying you shouldn't be fearful when you're on a horse because it is a big animal but in that little moment of just smiling and laughing and 
they don't know how to trot, but they're doing it. They're getting out of that uncomfortable zone, and they're just doing it, and they're smiling. Like, that's, that's what it should be about, and we shouldn't isolate ourselves. For instance, on the plane, you know, when I went to um, out west for my first time a couple weeks ago, you know, mm-hmm. the plane ride wasn't long. It was like two hours from here to Dallas and then two hours from Dallas to Rapid City. But I got to meet the coolest people ever just on the plane ride, you know. And they might be lifelong friends. And it was all because one of us took the initiative to talk to one another. And I feel like we've lost that. You know, we go in as robotically. We don't look at anything. We're not aware of our surroundings like we should be. We're not aware of our senses like we should be. We just go in and we ignore everything around us because we, we are in our ear pods or we are in our minds. We need to let go. We need to get to know people. Yeah, you agreed. Know, go ahead, Jackie. If I had the horses, I wouldn't allow anybody to have any electronic devices around because horses can hear those things. I don't care how <laughs> low you have them down. That's yep. one of the defense mechanisms of a horse. But I'm going to give you an example. In Missouri, in Ozark, not Ozark land, but in uh, Hannibal, around where Mark Twain grew up. Okay. Yeah, Mark Twain and, National Forest. Yes, and there are bluffs above the Mississippi River. Hmm. And I know that because I used to deer hunt in those areas. And you right. can be on the bluff and people would be down on the river having a normal conversation and you can hear every word they say. They don't have to shout. You can be up 200, 300 feet above them looking down, and you can hear every word they say. So the environment of nature is just so much different, so authentic, Mm -hmm. that it's just mind-blowing. And you have to also think, before we had these devices, how did people get along just fine? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I got a question for both of you. Uh, I was thinking about this uh, uh, too because uh, Candace, um, she's got some great Facebook pictures now with with a guitar and you know is embarking on some musical things. That country music, you know, comes from the South. Uh, some of our best mm-hmm. writers, like Mark Twain, are in the South. You know, what is it about the South? There's something different. I, I was thinking about this. This is one of those questions I was thinking of asking you, Candace. You know, you don't hear a lot of uh, New England country singers. <laughs> you don't hear a lot of, uh, you know, they're not coming out of Kansas. <laughs> okay. So what is it about our area here? And this is why I love broadcasting from Florida um, to the world. And so I was, I was checking. We have a, a Dutch um, guy that, that texts us. I guess he's off today. I think they just do a four-day week now. But uh, we get a lot of folks who are listening in different places, especially the Commonwealth, <clears throat> excuse me, the British Commonwealth countries. But uh, they're looking at the United States. I mean, I, I have people on that have accents on purpose. Uh, I don't shy away from that. Um, the, the culture of the South, or the local international radio show. But part of the reason I want to come to the South is that the writers – you know, the gourmet cooks, the artists. This is a very creative area and a very special area. As Pianchi was talking mm-hmm. about, you know, the fact that you can get away, you can get out in the woods, you can be on the river, you can do these things. But there's something unique about the South that I think we've almost forgotten, too. Um, and I don't, it's the warmer weather, the humidity, the, the climate, the, mm-hmm. the food. But there's something kind of cool about this area. Uh, do you notice it? Do you feel it? And when you went to Wyoming, did you, did you sense a difference? Um, when I went to Wyoming, I sensed, I mean, and even in going into um, 
parts of South Dakota, the Bighorns, and and Rapid Rapid City was a city, but it still just gave me more of a peaceful mind. And there was quite a few um, bars that we went in uh, Friday night. We got to listen to some local artists, and um, I mean, I've really kind of picked up some more of the Western old timey music as well, like Chris Ledoux. Mm. Um, Interesting. Ned Ledoux, son Ned Ledoux still um, still plays, and they actually are doing a um, local show there in Wyoming that I might be able to get to. I'm not sure, but that's in June. Um, and I, I think the South and the West really intertwine with one another. And I do believe it's, um, you know, we there is there's more peace to nature in both of those areas. So we're allowed to take that moment. I can't tell you how many times my poems come from the stories that develop in my head as I am riding my horses or, or when I'm really sitting alone and I'm breathing in the fresh air and I'm listening to the, to the birds and the wind. And, you know, so I wonder if our creative creativity in the South comes from just uh, giving us that inner peace of being able to get out and, and be one with the nature, all of our beachgoers, you know, they are creative, but they're, they get to go outside, outside of that busy um, city life, whereas, you know, you don't get to go take your feet off in New York or take your shoes off in New York City and, and go touch the sand like we do down here. And I'm sure there's nowhere that you can tube or float down a river in New York either. So I think mm. we just, our creativity in the South comes from the fact that we are blessed with so many different outdoorsy structures. I mean, it might not be mountainous like I like or waterfalls, but we still get that moment of peacefulness that can be brought in. Not that I feel like everybody goes out there to the beach and listens to the waves, but it's theoretically speaking, you know, I, I think it's just because we get I that do. little peacefulness. <laughs> I do yeah. too, you know, when I do go to the beach, but, you know, a lot of people go out there to party and day drink and things like that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I still think that their body's getting that little bit of, nature that they need i mean we're getting back to our roots we stay in the slop we stay in our roots you know <laughs> yeah that so, makes sense well maybe that we country songs i don't know <laughs> hmm yeah this time i want to explore more pianki what do you think because you spend a fair amount of time in uh in new orleans in louisiana well see, new orleans is, that yeah. area down there is what they call new france and were you there in Florida? You, they still call it down on the tip of Florida. It's still like the Caribbean, Spanish Caribbean. But you got the deep south. You got the New Netherlands, New France, the Midlands, the far west. They say that the United States consists of really eleven nations. And when you look at yeah. the the aspirations of the political this of the people, like those in in Maine and Massachusetts, uh, their perspective of things compared to people down in Florida and then people, in, especially in the southern states, there are differences. They are different. And uh, people in the south is more hospitality than mm-hmm. if you go up into Detroit, Michigan, and areas like that. So it's a great difference. People just don't want to realize it, but it does exist for those who have the eye to detect it. You know, it's interesting it works, I think, uh, different nations, too. I mean, I've toured most of Europe. 
and it jumped around. You know, it was great. But I noticed that, uh, like Germany, for example, the the industry is, is up north in in Hanover. You know, and 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 the and the, the crazy folks are down in Munich in southern Germany. Um, a lot of Italians, the industrial, the old uh, style is like up in, in Tuscany up north and uh, the, the Naples area where the, the southern Italians were, were much more artistic, more creative. So I think that runs in nations, too, in different countries. The, the northern areas, especially if they're in the northern hemisphere and they're colder, um, tend to get the more industrial, the more driven, the more corporate. Uh, and the freer thinkers are usually in the warmer climates. And in Australia, it's just the opposite. Because in the southern hemisphere, so Melbourne, where I used to live in the south, was the coldest place, and that was the that was the industrial, that was the productive, that was you know the 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 the, the conservative city, and of course Brisbane up in the Great Barrier Reef is where the party people go, you know, and so it, it, this this makes a huge impact, I think. But uh, the south, especially in this country, so Pianki, do you know those eleven regions? I mean, that'd be something fascinating for us to talk. We've only got like ten minutes left, but uh, do you know some of them? Is it outlined, or should we bring up another time? No, they're outlined. There's Mount okay. Hill. Matter of fact, I'll text them to you. But they're, okay. you know, the, the First Nations is up in the, and the First Nations. They're along the Canada-U.S. border, and we know New France mm-hmm. is uh, up there around the Great Lakes. Well, actually, above the Great Lakes. But yes, they the Yankee Dum. Where will Yankee Dum be at? New York, <laughs> Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, yeah New England, yeah. Greater Appalachia. And you got yeah. the El Norte, which is, you know, right there at the U.S.-Mexican border. Then you mm-hmm. got the far west. So those places do exist. When Asians came into across the Barren Straits, they entered into North America, they mm-hmm. came down along the coastline. Why? It's because they salt the ocean for their food sustenance. They was not used to going into the inland, into the desert area, so... Uh, that's where they started to evolve it. And uh, people keep those type of tendencies and ideologies even today. And you can see it, you can hear it in the language, in the mm-hmm. accent. So, it, yes, it does exist. Yeah, there's a lot of Russians spoken in San Francisco because there's a big Russian population that came down from the north, you know, as the Spanish was coming up from the south, and they didn't go along too well. <laughs> that's an interesting history, too. Um, but, uh, but, but get back to what we were talking about before, the whole idea of the American dream. You can come from anywhere and be American. And that's not the same mm-hmm. for a lot of other countries that are much more dependent on nationality and heritage and bloodlines and, and family and aristocracies and classes and castes and all the other things that people have to divide themselves. America is the only place really on earth where it is, it is and it should be, and it's, it's being taken away from us, but we are based on ideas. We are based on the spirit yeah. of freedom. Yeah. Let me just ask a couple more questions about your trip, because was this your first time on an airplane? Your first time away from the area? Um, first, how many first times did you, did you have on this trip that you just took? Um, so it was my first time flying out west. I mean, since I was a little girl, I always wanted to go to Wyoming. It was always mm-hmm. a calling. Um, it wasn't my first time on a plane, but the two times that I was on a plane was just to Atlanta. It was when I was working for corporate, so I went to Atlanta and Tampa, and I didn't get to explore. It was more of hey, you're going to fly and you're going to go into this hotel and this is where you're going to spend the day. Um, so mm-hmm. this was like my first flight out where I could really adventure and kind of be myself and not have a, you know, a schedule to follow. So we did the ghost tour in Deadwood. Deadwood, Deadwood was such a cool, incredible place. I mean, there was so much what history. What a great name. The old, 
excellent name to it, yeah. I mean, it got it. It was an old mining town, and, I mean, through the ghost tour, they talked about how at one point it was, like, in that specific little town, it was seven deaths to 100 people a day, you know, and it's just like, man, like, if you wanted to go see a shootout, that would be the place to go. Um, hmm. so, but, so it was it was quite fascinating, but it was also fascinating to know that that town was still up and going, and a lot of the buildings were still original, and so many statues with history, um, you know, and I'm a big history, I, I love history, so like getting to really just be in tune with and getting to know what that city was about and how it's still thriving today is it's pretty phenomenal, and then um, I got to see snow for the first time. So, oh, being a true Florida, never, uh, <laughs> never getting out of Florida to see or feel the dry cold like that was phenomenal. I got to hike some in the snow. Um, I didn't do any skiing or anything like that. I did get to go see the skajoring, the Sheridan. What's that? Um, and skajoring is where you ski or you snowboard behind a horse. Um, so Sheridan oh, really? was. With Sounds a Scandinavian thing. Sounds like you got the heading and the fish. So you go ski jotting. Um, so that was quite interesting. Um, my friend that actually lives in Wyoming, he got to do that for the first time. So that was a spontaneous thing that he got to do while we were out there, and he did awesome. And then um, um, snow, Deadwood, ghost tours, scajoring. Um, I got to play in a casino. I've never played in a casino. I didn't win anything. I just did $20. That was my next question. <laughs> yeah, so there was quite a few casinos in Deadwood. Um, really? But I didn't win anything. I got to eat some really cool um, food while I was out there. I got to try elk, learn that they didn't have sweet tea like us southerners do, so that was fun. Yeah, you got to make it. You got to make it in the rest of the country. Yeah, just take yeah, all the sugar so, into the place and pour it into it. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I drank it like it was no tomorrow because I didn't want to say anything. But the hospitality there was different. Like everybody was, you know, down here in the south they're friendly, but up there they were they were probably more friendlier, in my opinion. I mean, it was cool getting to that cowboy cafe and – and watching just random strangers sit together just so it made life easier. And we sat next to one another and ate like we ate those meals together our whole lives. So getting to listen to how they handle their cattle farm and talk about how I handle my ranch down here in Florida. Um, so a lot of new things, a lot of new beginnings, a lot of new friendships were made, um, a lot of history. And, um, and it was just, it was amazing. I'm ready to go back. That's for sure. Yeah, I think um, I I took a train trip around the whole outside of the United States. I was gone like two and a half months. Uh, One of the things I found is up in northern areas, Montana, Wyoming, uh, people were more reserved. Uh, They started conversations, but, uh, you know, uh, I think, but as opposed to the place in the south where everybody's talking to everybody, (laughs) it was pretty wild. Um, But uh, in New England, they were all complaining. From Chicago to New York, people just could not stop complaining, but it was quieter up in, up in the northern part of the country. And I think you personally, because you're so open to new experiences and open to these new people mm-hmm. and just kind of radiate this energy that like, yeah, I want to talk to you, that that attracts people yeah. that, would, might, that might be more reserved, that are more willing to talk to you. So that's something yeah. to, to, to keep and, and recognize and, and go with. I mean, I, people talk to me because I'm nosy. I ask questions. <laughs> so what do you, you know, pretty outrageous questions too. It's sort of an occupational hazard now, but it, you know, but that's, if you keep that, you, you always want to keep that. 
You want to keep that optimism. You want to keep that spirit. You want to be open to, to all these experiences. And travel is the best one. And so we need to get more. Yeah. Uh, we need young folks traveling. Speaking of travel, um, and I'll tell you, we've, we used to have, and I'm trying to, I'll try and get it back on. Actually, it's been a while. Uh, Pianki used to talk to another friend of mine, Alan Dawson. Now, Alan is a tour guide in Belize. And so oh, wow. he had... He had a time during COVID when they weren't doing a lot of tours, so he was on all the time. Of course, Pianchi asked him what was for lunch every day. It was hysterical. <laughs> with all his tropical Belize menu things. But I want to get action radio traveling. And I'm thinking England especially. We all have to go meet at Magna Carta. Talk about that. Uh, Alan said we can drop down anytime for a week down there. And so get your passport. Oh, there's my 90-second warning. You need to get your passport because <laughs> you never know. We're not going to drag you with us uh, to various different places. So get your passport. It's going to come in handy. Okay. So I want, I want all of us to meet. I'd love to go to CPAC next year and teach legislative workshops. So I've never met Pianchi. We've been talking for, what, three years now maybe, and uh, we haven't met. And so, you know, so I want to get all of us together at some point uh, and do some serious yeah. traveling like that and, and see where we can go. Now, things are heating up yeah. in Australia and New Zealand in terms of, in Australia, uh, our Australian Bill of Individual Rights. So I'm going to talk to Jen, Jen Clark about that and see what's going on. But there's a video I post, uh, I'd be curious your view, and I posted it, and Pianchi, you too, that uh, New Zealand, there's a woman, uh, Liz Gunn, who did something on uh, free NZ or NZ uh, media. That's on Facebook. And it's 45 minutes of the tyranny of what happened with all the folks uh, like Jacinda, the, the, the prime minister, who basically destroyed that country, took away everybody's rights. Mm-hmm. And uh, things that happened in, in Australia, New Zealand, in Canada, and uh, in England, and a lot of Western Europe, uh, well, actually a lot of Europe, is, is horrible. And so I'm sort of thinking, Candace, for you, and this is like a long-term thing to think about. I, I, you don't have to answer you know, much of the question now. But there's got to be a way to combine what you're doing with horses with the romance of the United States and the American dream uh, to reach younger folks in, in different, there's my 10 second warning, different people and d- different younger folks in different countries and through horses mm-hmm. and through all this kind of stuff to kind of bring people together. And I can see like this international coalition forming. I haven't really thought it all through myself yet. So I'll be curious, but uh, if that's something that interests you, if we can build audiences in different places and maybe reach out to, you know, horse companies, horse organizations in different countries and through our Skype line, oh, yeah. get them on the show. Of course, that might be awake at two in the morning, but um, that might be something fascinating for us to look into. Yeah, that would be really cool. And I have some friends, um, two friends, actually, one friend that wants to go to Brazil and do some workshops, some women workshops. And then I have a friend that is actually buying a house in Peru that wants me to do some horse stuff out there in Peru. So mm, um, there you, you go. Know, yeah, yeah that's I am completely. I mean, that's. I want. I want to get my voice heard, and not for a pride thing, but I want to be able to help people. I want to be able to let people know, you know, just chase your dream. You know, mm-hmm. go out and do it. So don't don't be afraid. Now that's critical, and there's a there's a difference between doing something really ambitious, uh, and there's something doing something that's really, really egotistical. Okay, we need mm-hmm. about what, 10 to 20 million listeners to accomplish what I want to do with Action Radio. Uh, so we need yeah. fame. We need, we need to be public. We need to be very open. We need to be, you know, huge. Do I do it for my own ego? But, no. <laughs> I, need, I need to accomplish, you know, the legislation that sets us free to avoid that civil war that you talked about earlier in the show. So it is critical mm-hmm. for us to be extremely well-known and to be very public. Now, there's a price to be paid mm-hmm. for that, but I think it's worth it. But on the other hand, always keep in mind that why, why I'm doing this for Action Radio is not for my own personal glory. I don't need, you know, I'm, I'm the most, uh, what is it, introspective, uh, um, what is it, uh, the word I'm trying to think of. Um, you know, the words, I forgot, like, 
those the, those that, the, the extrovert. There we go. Introvert as opposed to extrovert. Okay. I'm actually very extroverted in what I do, but I'm very introverted in person. And so you might yeah. be the same way. But so do what you do, not out of ego, but out of purpose. And then it's okay. <laughs> you know, does that make sense? Yeah. That right. is. That's okay. 100% yeah. Pianki, last word, and then we'll get uh, Candace's information one more time. Well, I was going to tell Candace, it's always great to get young people out into nature uh, and let them know that this is the first teacher of humankind. The first teacher of humankind was nature. Humankind observed nature, how it took care of its children, how it planned for winter, even squirrels, berries, and nuts. It showed how the young learned from the adults and how the adults pass on and left it to the young. If you're going to have a free and liberty nation, it requires much maintenance because right. if you don't, it would be old, stale, and taken over. And one of the main things of maintaining a free and liberty nation is your young people's education. They have to be yeah. brought up with the basics, and that has to be foremost more so than anything else. But I really enjoy what you're doing. Keep it up. Thank you so well, much. She'll, she'll be back most Fridays. You know, Candace yeah. is going to be a regular. You know, we, we just, I decided that about 30 seconds after you were on the first time. <laughs> that was easy. Yeah. Yeah, you were going to say. Which I love it. Yeah. yeah. So we get the last word to you. Any any final comments and any uh, – and let's get your uh, information on, on, on your, your horse business place again. Yep. And then we'll do it next week. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Well, um, again, I go by Cowgirl Candace. Um, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, um, Facebook, um, my business page, my business website, my business Facebook page is Believe the Journey Horse Services. Um, and I, everything that I do is basically, it's just me running the, running the business. So when you're answering or when you're getting online and you're messaging, you are speaking directly to me. So I do try to respond within 24 hours. Um, and then you can always text or call me. And if I'm not riding, I do not answer my phone and I don't normally reply if I'm on a horse only because I am consistently there watching other people ride and making sure that my attention is on them and my horses and the nature. So there is a lot of times that it's going to be late night text messages with me um, or early morning before I get started. Um, Typically book out within two to three weeks. But again, please reach out to me. I want everybody to experience what I do here. Um, And even if you just want to talk about horses, I mean, I have several people that just say, hey, you know, I'm getting ready to get a horse. What do you recommend? So I'm always there um, to listen or to talk with you. So, again, it's Believe the Journey Horse Services, or you can also find me on Cowgirl Candace, and that's where you'll see a lot of my reels and my shows about Traveler, my dog, who everybody will meet because he goes on all the rides with me. Um, and he's an inspirational piece as well that eventually I will make children books out of. Um, and then you can also see kind of just my chaotic personal life of how I like to be random and, and go on these <laughs> vacations. And, uh, You're in good company. And <laughs> yeah, so – I mean, or you might even see the video of me riding the shovel behind the horse at full speed. Who knows? So um, y'all just check me out and, um, and get with me, and we'll get you on a horse. 
Sounds good. And you're welcome to bring any guest on too, whether it's customers or, or people or people with good stories or anything, horse-related people, anything that you want to do with that. So feel, or it doesn't even have to be. But feel free to bring guests on the show with you. Uh, that's not a, that's yep. not a problem either. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Candice. All right. Thank yeah. you so much, we'll do it Greg. Next week. We'll talk yeah. Friday. Yep. Sounds good. Alrighty. You take care. Take care. Right. Bye. Bye now. Pianki, you too. It's been a great week, sir. Thanks for your help. And uh, let's do it again Monday. Yeah, I gave you that map. Give you a sense of understanding why come no one political persuasion is good for the whole nation. We should talk about that Monday. Let me just take a look real quick. Yeah. Oh, it's. Uh, yeah, I have to open up an, an app to get the map. I need a. I need a map app. <laughs> well, it's there on your uh, Facebook Messenger. It's already. Prepared. Oh, there it is. Okay, so yeah, so I've got it here. Oh yeah, this is gonna be fun. Let's talk about this Monday. This might be kind of fun. We'll talk about our, our nation. Okay, thanks. You take care, Pianki. Yeah, I got a weekend coming up too, which means I get to work. <laughs> I have all kinds of stuff that I have to do uh, to start getting ready for next week. It's, it's an ongoing process. In fact, I have a couple of show notes to do for I think Wednesday through today's show to get us all caught up uh, with all the different times transferring from the from Central Time uh, to the actual time in the show. So I have to work on that. Always stuff to do, always things going, always things happening. Although it seems strangely calm. I'm kind of worried that we don't have, I'm so used to disasters and emergencies that we don't have one. I'm like, okay, what's really going on? So I, my suspicious side takes over. Anyway, the website you're listening to, blogtalkradio.com slash citizen action. Our legislative website is writeyourlaws.com. That's W-R-A-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S. Um, on uh, Substack at gregpenglis.substack.com. That's where you can find that chart that I started talking about. <laughs> you know, but read the article. It's all self-explanatory. Uh, and that's all there. And, of course, you know, our regular folks all next week. And we'll do another crazy week. More legislation, more things happening. I've played everything I want to play. So the only thing left to play uh, is our closing theme music. Um, for Fridays, we play the 18-12 Overture. And I'll get you going with that. And then talk to you all Monday uh, morning at 7 a.m. Central Time. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.